Hey, hey, everybody. This is Van Molyneux from Freedom Made Radio. Hope you're doing well. Three super-duper great calls tonight. But please, please remember to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate to help produce what you consume. Don't be a free rider. Don't be a freeloader. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and there certainly ain't no such thing as a free philosophy show about property rights and the non-aggression principles. So I remind you, I beg you, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Now, the first caller wanted to get us up to speed on what was going on in South Africa. And it is a view down a tunnel of time that just seems to go ever downward. When do you stand and fight? When do you cut and run? It's a very interesting question. Now, the second caller, gosh, what do I say? He, I suppose, is more than willing to trade his foreskin for sexual access and wanted to make that case to my audience as well, to you. And we had a robust exchange of ideas that ended in a pretty fiery way. But I think that the importance of the topic really, really supports that approach. So the third caller wanted to know whether it's a valid thesis to say that Asian Americans owe their economic prosperity to the African-American civil rights struggle in the 1960s, and so shouldn't the Asian-Americans just give up spots in the university to African-Americans as a way of saying thanks? Hmm. Interesting argument. Haven't heard it before, but we chewed through it in great depth. Don't forget to pick up your copy of The Art of the Argument at theartoftheargument.com. You can also get it at audible.com. And you can, if you have some shopping to do, go to fdrurl.com slash Amazon. It costs you nothing, helps us out a little bit. And don't forget, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux and sign up for our newsletter at freedomainradio.com. All right. Well, up first today, we have Dirk. Dirk wrote in and said, I'm a young white South African man living in one of the major cities. Having grown up in a country which is the so-called rainbow nation, the post-apartheid miracle, and an example to all other countries that diversity can work. Unfortunately, the reality is that South Africa is a failed state. Crime rates are through the roof, municipalities are corrupt and bankrupt, school districts are non-exciting, and apartheid is still to blame for everything wrong in South Africa. Extreme leftist socialism is on the rise and political parties, such as the economic freedom fighters, are openly calling for the expropriation of land without compensation and calling for the killing of whites. Their leader, Julius Malma, being just as bloodthirsty as warlords such as Idi Amin of Uganda. Going to sleep at night when Julius Malma makes statements like, quote, When whites arrived in South Africa, they had committed a black genocide, when blacks were dispossessed of their land, end quote. Quote, They found peaceful Africans here. They killed them. They slaughtered them like animals. We're not calling for the slaughtering of white people, at least for now, end quote. Statements which are lies and create hatred in an already fragile society. The calling for killing of whites falls on deaf ears throughout the world. It seems as if the West cannot see or hear what is happening. This hatred is not only found in South Africa, but throughout the Third World. The Third World is pouring into Europe and North America, seeking to change and destroy the West values and ideologies into a socialist society such as South Africa. It seems that the West has forgotten where they came from and has had this incredible self-hatred, calling white people privileged and racist. I would like to use this opportunity as a warning to the West. You are privileged, and that is why you are allowing your politicians to destroy Western values. You will only understand what you have now 
when in the future you have a six-foot wall with barbed wire on top around your house, burglar bars on every window, alarm systems, armed response guards one call away, and a gun next to your bed. That's from Dirk. Dirk, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, thanks to yourself. I'm well, I mean, as well as I can be hearing these kinds of stories, which I've, I'm not unfamiliar with, but do you remember life before the modern South Africa? What has the change been? Um, ugh, not, not really. Um, basically, I grew up uh, after um, all my memories after 1994. Um, and, and some of my first memories was actually moving um, to the town that I grew up in in 1997. Um, so, so, so it's uh, very interesting to see how, 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 how everything changed in, in, in the society, basically, um, in South Africa. Because um, I remember when we moved here for, uh, to, to this town, um, we didn't have burglar bars, for example. There was no fences around your, your house. Um, everything was open. Um, and in a matter of two, three years, um, my, my father, for example, put up uh, um, what they would call devil's fork. Um, it's basically um, steel um, poles um, that's um, welded next to one another. It's got like um, spikes on top uh, for, for security reasons. Um, installed in alarm systems. Um, and, uh, so, so, so society basically got, got more and more unsafe as, as time progressed until basically we are where we are today. Um, like, like, for example, uh, it's, it's, it's quite ironic. Um, currently, the, my parents' house, for example, it's, it's got a electric, or it's, it's got this devil's fork. On top, you've got electric fence. We've got an alarm system inside the garden. So, for example, if someone gets past the electric fence, you can still um, have like an early warning system. And um, then also the house has got another third system, alarm system. Um, basically, if you're away on holiday or so forth, you, you can switch this on as well, um, just for in case um, they get past all the, all the other barriers. And there are, of course, a lot of the South Africans who then also have panic rooms inside the home where they aim to retreat. And it's, it's living in a war zone. It is living in, well, without even the comfort. If you're in a war zone... Usually there are allies. And, you know, like I think of London in 1940 when it was being bombed by Hitler's Luftwaffe, there was at least a sense of solidarity. But here there's isolation, loneliness, hatred, fragmentation, and no clear end in sight. Well, not, not one that goes in the right direction, right? Um, yes, yes, no, absolutely. Um, with one of the latest things um, happening in the news – um, is the land issue, and um, it's it's absolutely all over the media, news, radio. You can't switch on um, a news channel with, without them having a debate on on on, on taking um, white farmers' land currently. Um, so 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 you've got uh, this this incredible um, conflict because um, currently also that uh, recently in the Northern Cape at public hearings in the town walls. And just reading those Twitter feeds, um, it's it's quite shocking um, to to see how how the the, the people are looking at this case. Because because basically, if they start taking land in this country, it's 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 going to be um, it's going to be disasters for the economy. Uh, it's probably most going to be disasters for farmers. Um, I, I believe this this going to be a um, 
there, there could be a civil war probably um, if, if he gets so far. Well, um, and tragically, that may be the optimal outcome because otherwise they're just going to kill all the whites and then they're going to start running out of food and then they're going to start heading to Europe. Yes, um, that's very, very true. Um, especially um, this, this one politician, Julius Malema, um, he's, he's, he's the leader of the economic freedom fighters and, and he's one of the main politicians pushing this land debate um, currently uh, um, in South Africa. Um, so he's, he's, in, um, he's the leader of the third biggest party. I do believe in the next election, his numbers will definitely grow. Um, so, so, and and he's, uh, he's absolutely ruthless um, with the statements he makes. He's absolutely reckless. Um, uh, just just um, to give a little bit of a background um, to why I decided to write into the show. Um, currently, where I'm working... Um, uh, it's, it's not too far from a stadium away. And um, on, on when I wrote into your show, um, he basi- basically had a, like a rally um, in, in, in the stadium. Uh, so so it, it's one thing to, to, to hear the statements he, he makes um, over the television or over the radio, or you read it in the news. It's another th- completely different thing to hear one of Julius Malema's rallies for three, four hours um, non-end, calling for for absolutely disastrous policies. Yeah, because there's a, a bloodlust and a hatred. And I know this, obviously, not nearly as well as you do, Dirk, but when I do videos on the plight of the whites in South Africa, I mean, the amount of hatred and, and you know, go back to your European caves, you murderous albinos like like the, the 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 bottomless well of hatred that emerges from a lot of the comments and some of those people of course self-identifying as black it's not a survey but it's data of a kind and uh it is just a non-negotiable standpoint if you believe as as these stories are that you know there was this wonderful happy roots style civilization that the hateful whites came in with their sunburned evil and killed and murdered and raped and and pill- it, it creates just such a bottomless level of hatred and as we pointed out in this show before as i'm sure you know it's not true most of south africa is absolutely unfarmable because it's too dry the only way to farm in south africa in any reliable way is to have irrigation and none of the sub-Saharan blacks, not the uh, Hosa, not the uh, Bantu, had irrigation technology. So the land was empty. It was empty. And now that the whites have created value out of land, suddenly it's just the most precious thing that was stolen from us. Do you know what I mean? Um, yes, yes. Very, very true. Um, I, I also have to say thank you to Lauren Sudden. Um, she did an excellent uh, documentary a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the first couple of minutes, she really does um, clarify the history very, very well. Um, but that history is unconvenient um, to the lie that's being sold to the And just people. for those, the, the, the documentary is called Farmlands, and it is available on YouTube, just for those who want to check it out. And um, it's recommended, yes, uh, of course. Yes, yes, no, definitely. Um, it, it gives you shivers um, watching that. Um, and... And, and definitely, there's an attack on farmers, um, without a doubt. Um, it's, it's like, um, 
Afri Forum. Um, I, you, you did a show a couple of weeks or months ago uh, with, with Aaron's Roots as well. Um, he, he usually um, posts on YouTube um, s- some of the videos on the stats on farm murders and so forth, and it's, it's, it's devastating. And um, another lie is they say the farm murders dominate um, the South African news. And, and that's another lie because they just keep it silent. You, you will maybe hear of one in 10 farm murders that takes place, um, but most of them are, are, are just silent. Um, it's, it's an inconvenient truth. The government doesn't want um, the public to know about it. They don't want the world to know about it. And um, they will just continue on with this, um, their, their reckless policies they're busy with. Um, and, and, and this land debate, um, it's uh, the, the hearings and stuff they're busy currently with, it's, it's, it's devastating. Um, it, it's, it's like um, half of the country in South Africa believe um, this, this lie that their land has been stolen. And the only way from their, for, for them to, to, to improve their lives um, is, is to get the land from, from the the evil white man and once they've got this land then they will um all of, all of a sudden with a miracle from from out of nowhere they will um will be wealthy again um but well and they went through the process right sorry to interrupt uh, dirk but there was a whole process that went on for many years maybe it's still going on i don't know wherein if you were a black in south africa and you felt or had belief or reason to believe that you had claim to the land currently being farmed by white people, you could go to the government and there would be an adjudication process and you could take back the land. If it was found to be any kind of just claim, you could take back the land or you could take the money. And of course, the vast majority of the blacks just took the money and did who knows what with it. But there's been a whole process that's been in place for decades to attempt to redress any historical injustices that could even be conceivably imagined with regards to white expropriation of land. And nobody wants the land. They want the money. So it's just another one of these um, racial shakedowns. Um, yes, exactly. Um, I've basically got a theory that by, by the first um, BMW or Mercedes, they, they walk, in, uh, walk into the showroom too. Because um, um, you'll find in some r- very poor rural communities, townships and so forth, if you travel through them, you'll find some luxury um, vehicles um, um, in their gar- garages and so, or not garages, they don't really have garages. It's more like um, um, sink part-time housing um, that they've got. Uh, so, so, so they're not interested in the land. They're more interested in the money and the free stuff they can get. Um, also, also another policy that the government has is this um, BEE, this Black Economic Empowerment, um, where basically they they. Uh, companies, um, um, especially companies that want to do, uh, who has to work with um, government tender tender processes and so forth, are, are forced um, to employ X amount of black people. They are forced to have X amount of um, um, the shares must must be in the hands of black people, else um, it, it can be negative to the company. And uh, that makes it very, very difficult for, for um, um, especially white people in South Africa to, to get to work um, because basically on, on the BE um, chain, um, whites are at the bottom, blacks are on top. Even though blacks are now by far the majority, 
right? So this this idea that that white people have is like, oh well, you know, there were these injustices against minorities, so we're just going to balance things out. But of course, statistically, as whites become the minorities in the countries that they built, there's no equalization. People don't say, oh, well, no, now we're the majority and the whites are the minority. So let's make sure that the whites get employed and make, make sure the whites are well treated. It only goes one way uh, historically and, and across the world. It goes in terms of, well, we have a minority here. We're going to work to try and improve their lot. And then when the whites become the minority, there is no justice that returns the other way. There's just continued exploitation. Um, yes, yes, definitely. Um, and uh, just just spending some time on the internet, and when I see uh, that um, they're also employing um, s- or, or starting to employ similar type of systems in in Europe and 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 America, North America, where they have to do this diversity hiring, um, it's it's a very slippery slope. Um, before you know, um, th- those regulations and stuff will just become completely um, bonkers basically it's it's completely uncompetitive and and it basically destroys a country's economy because uh, you have got very very incompetent people in very powerful positions at the end of the day and um, if you haven't earned something and, and you have built up a company from the ground up it's uh, you, you basically don't know anything um, it's it's corruption um, and um, it's uh, but, but sadly that's that's how um, the society goes today in South Africa, and they're starting to implement that in overseas countries as well, slowly but steadily. Well, and it's it's against uh, Asians, uh, East Asians, of course, are uh, fiercely discriminated against in the West, uh, in America, in particular, in entrance to university because they do so much better. And this all arises, of course, from this complete denial of scientific and biological reality about ethnic IQ differences. I mean, it is just, I mean, it's it's such a horrible shame. And, and damn these communists and damn these leftists to hell and gone. Because what they do, of course, is they say, everyone's the same, therefore all differences must arise from prejudice and injustice. But people in general, on aggregate, when looked at is as group phenomena, they're not the same. There are taller races, there are shorter races, there are smarter races, there are less smart races, there are, I mean, you name it, there are just lots of differences. And that's diversity, that's nature tinkering with the human model to adapt it to local circumstances. And so the reality is that you're not going to end up with completely interchangeable people, like everyone's just in a Star Trek uniform, where you can swap them in and out like pawns in a chess game, and it doesn't really matter. This is not the way that reality is. And so rather than the human community coming together, coming together to say, well, there are intelligence differences between ethnicities. It is a huge and challenging problem. But we as a human community can get together and figure out what to do about it. Now, people have been denying any of these biological differences. So what they do is they just slosh money around and they pass laws and they try and jig the endings and so on. And it doesn't work. It just makes things worse. It inflames racial hatreds. It inflames um, hostility and, and, and rage. And, and it ends up with, well, we can't become equal. Therefore, white racism must be even worse than we thought it was. So we're going to redouble our efforts. And you redouble your efforts. And then you still can't become equal because of human biodiversity. And therefore, it must be even worse 
than we, than we thought. And we're kind of at the end of this whole 60, 70 year process of trying to change the environment and redistribute resources in order to attain equality of outcome between the races. And people are getting kind of desperate because it really hasn't worked. I mean, in America, in order to close racial differences in school, they had a Head Start program where two-thirds of the students were supposed to end up as the average because, of course, people are just mathematically ridiculously illiterate. And they burned through over $100 billion trying to solve this problem, and they did not budget in any significant way at all. There were a few spikes here and there, but they very quickly ran out. And so we have this hypothesis, which is a truly deadly hypothesis at the moment, which says all differences in group outcomes are the result of racism, are the result of prejudice, are the result of bigotry. And, you know, why are the blacks doing worse than the whites and the poor uh, in South Africa? Because the whites are evil and stole our land and stole our resources and raped our women and killed us all. And that's why they're doing well. And we're, that's a hypothesis. When I point it out to people commenting on my videos in South Africa, they say, well, the whites are just slaughtering the blacks. It's like, well, but the black population went up 800% under apartheid. That, it, that's the opposite of a genocide. <laughs> that's the, numerically, that's the complete opposite. But it doesn't matter because the leftists, and not just the leftists, to be fair, there are lots of people who, who believe this, but in general, it seems to really come from the leftists, the maintenance of this fantasy of radical anti-scientific human egalitarianism. The leftists are just constantly whispering into everyone's ears. Everyone's the same. All the differences are due to racism. And anyone who talks about, say, race and IQ is just an evil Nazi. And this idea of weaponizing visible minorities in Western countries goes back to the 1920s and was an official goal of international communism. And it is really, really bearing its bitter fruit at the moment. And things most likely are going to get a whole lot worse than they before they get better. I, I sort of hate to say it because you're in a more vulnerable position than than I am. But until we can get this idea across and diffuse some of these tensions, look, it's nobody's fault. It's nobody's fault that groups have different levels of intelligence. It's nobody's fault that groups have different levels of bone density. It's nobody's fault that groups have different levels of reflexes or like it's nobody's fault. We don't need to get so enraged with each other that we're willing to Kill the farmers that support our country. Drive out the farmers that support our country. Strip competent people from the infrastructure that keeps us all alive. That level of anger is something that has been carefully cultivated for many, many, many years. Decades and decades and decades. Undoing it is going to be a huge challenge. I stand in the world wanting people to get along. But in order to get along, we have to stop blaming each other for things which just aren't our fault. It's not my fault that there are differences in race and IQ. It's not my fault that there are differences in gender and IQ. It's not anyone's fault. It is a problem that humanity has to look at, grapple with, and try to solve. Because the way that it, people are trying to solve it now, well, Rivers of blood is the phrase that's been used before, and I think it's tragically appropriate, and I will do whatever I can 
to prevent that from coming into being. But if we're not allowed to talk about these differences, people who deny these differences and attack people who talk about these differences, you are signing the death warrants of millions of people. Like, Russia is at the moment, I've heard some conflicting reports, it's either on the verge or currently, accepting up to 15,000 white South African farmers to help them escape persecution. Yes. And because they're very, what is the status of that at the moment? Um, it's just recently popped up into the news. Um, so I'm not 100% aware. Um, what I'm understanding, it's first going to be a couple of farmers, like 30 or 50 of them that's going to go to Russia. And it's going to be a process of a couple of years um, that they're going to migrate from from um, South Africa to, to Russia. Um, but but the first time I read that articles, um, I have to say it was quite humorous for me to think back um, 30 years ago, um, who would have thought um, Russia being a country that will actually <laughs> save whites at the end of the day? <laughs> because it's, there's this communism so that has been driving a lot of this stuff. And here's the terrible thing, Dirk, and this is why I wanted to get this point across. I put it on Twitter. People want to follow me at Stefan Molyneux. It's well worth it. have got a lot of good stuff coming out of Twitter. But the average farmer, the average white farmer in South Africa feeds 2,000 people. You take 15,000 farmers out of South Africa – that's 30 million people who aren't going to get food. 30 yes, that's million true. people. Now, you could say, well, but they'll just move in. But the, the farming in South Africa is really, really complicated. And you have an average IQ in the blacks in sub-Saharan Africa in the low 70s. Like, I'm sorry, it's, it's not going to work. It's nobody's fault. I'm not mad at anyone. I have great sympathy for everyone involved. It's not going to work. And then there's going to be, well, now, for mysterious reasons that I, I'm sure will be blamed on white-driven global warming, there's a food shortage in South Africa. So now, white people who used to grow the food for the people in South Africa, now white people have to be taxed and their food taken and shipped off to South Africa. And there won't be enough. Um, and then the South Africans are going to start heading north. Yes, um, absolutely, very, very true. Um, I just have a couple of thoughts. Um, the, the, the first one is very, very ironic as well. Um, as, as soon as anyone in the media um, brings up um, the fact that people are going to starve, you, it's going to destroy the economy and so forth, um, and um, the, the debate is always, no, Cuba is a very good example, for example, of a, a socialist society um, working wonderfully. And then they will bring up and say, but Cuba is also a failed state. And then they will have this ar argument of, yes, but Cuba, um, um, it, it, the only reason it failed is because of the bad Americans um, who, 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 who Blame Whitey again. Blame Whitey again. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So it really gets old very, very quickly. And, um, it's, it's in, and the, the debate will just swift from one side to another side. And if you bring up um, scenarios like um, Idi Amin, for example, from Uganda, um, when, when he got into power, um, he basically destroyed the middle class of Uganda um, by giving seven days, if I remember correctly, for um, all the Indian population of Uganda to leave the country. 
And those were the people who were the farmers. They were the people who had the shops, the businesses. They were dealing the imports, exports, bankers. And within three months of getting rid of that 57,000 um, Indian population, um, the, the country fell to pieces. People started starving in Uganda. And um, as soon as you do that in a in, in South Africa as well, if you decide to get rid of, say, for example, half a million productive people in this society, this, this country will just collapse um, w w within a couple of months, especially but if that's you're going to take going the on. businesses away. I mean, the, the flight, the white flight from South Africa has been, I mean, my father, right? The white flight from South Africa has been enormous. Um, yes, um, you hear every year of people leaving, immigrating to different countries, um, especially in New Zealand, um, Australia. Um, some of them go to Canada, the States. Um, it's, it's quite amazing to hear how many people, or, or white farmers, for example, um, my, my age group, for example, and younger, um, they go to America and go work on the farms over there, for example. Because, um, because it's it's simply too dangerous, and and, and um, all the laws and everything, and the tax systems, and it's 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 absolutely ridiculous. Um, and also, I do believe it's it's one of the the most difficult jobs to be a farmer, especially in South Africa. Um, like you brought up the climate. Um, big parts of South Africa has got a very, very harsh climate, um, very cold um, winters. You, you also get very hot summers. Um, rainfall is not, it's, it's not like in Europe, for example, you, where you've got um, many milliliters of rain every year. It's, it's, it's quite a, a dry region. So, and, um, and, and many of the farms are very isolated as well. Um, a farmer basically has to be the mechanic, he has to be the builder, he has to do the books, he has to know a bit uh, about veterinary science with, to help with his animals, he has to know about um, plants, he has to understand the weather, um, diseases, and um, it's, it's it's a very, very complex um, job. It's it's a job, uh, honestly, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and and another thing is it's it's a, it's a stereotype. They always say a farmer works from sun up to sun sundown, and that's very very true. And um, unfortunately, vast majority of the people living in South Africa are very very lazy. They don't want to sacrifice to to get something. They want to receive something for free from the government, and and that's evident by just looking at the massive welfare system in this country. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing. Um, yeah, there are more, more people on welfare than paying taxes many times. Um, yes, exactly. Um, and um, another thing that's recently being um, also in the news um, has been this national health care um, insurance scheme that the government is thinking of. Um, and and so I have to say is is the the government clearly doesn't understand economics 101 because this system is is ridiculous. So to give you background, um, the, the 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 government um, hospitals, the state-run hospitals, are basically failing. Um, they don't have medical supplies. Um, they don't have doctors because many doctors are leaving the country, um, first of all. Um, and um, it's, it's just completely um, ineffect 
it's it's not working at all. So so the government solution to this is to have like an Obamacare basically, but for South African now. Um, so they want the people who are paying tax to subsidize a new medical fund, and this medical fund will allow all the citizens of South Africa to go to private hospitals. And um, uh, after that news broke out, I, I went on the internet to just to, to, to figure out how many taxpayers we've got in South Africa who's <laughs> actually paying like um, taxes. And um, uh, first, first of all, you get conflicting um, information. You get anything from four to about 7.5 million uh, people are actually paying taxes. And that small percentage of the population will have to, to fund a scheme, a medical scheme, for approximately 60 plus million people. Um, it's it's going to be very, very expensive, especially if it's being run by, by the government, who is always notorious, ineffective with everything they do. Yeah, I don't, I don't, honestly, Dirk, I have no idea where people think this is going to go when you have four to six million people funding the healthcare of 60 million people. What do they think is going to happen? Is there, of course, there's no particular plan. And this is not just in South Africa. This is governments around the world who are just refusing to look at the mathematics and what is completely unsustainable and making rational decisions and telling hard truths to the population. And the the terrible thing is, and I've said this before, and it's something that appalls me, but we have to look at the facts, even though they stare back with baleful eyes. The reality is that in the third world, the population has increased due to the expertise of other cultures and other races. And because there's this great lie, as I mentioned before, about racial egalitarianism, there's this belief that you can just transfer a European-run civilization or a white-run civilization, just transfer it to, say, blacks or, or Indians, and it's just going to be the same, you know, because people are just interchangeable. But it's not. It's not. And it's incredibly cruel what is happening right now. The amount of suffering that is going to go on in South Africa as the result of this lie, it takes a preternaturally interstellar cosmic sadism to set this kind of horror into motion, these endless horrors into motion. And the fact that people like myself, we're considered to be, what, bad guys because we're talking about upcoming disasters in race relations based upon egalitarian fantasies and based upon constantly whispering into an aggressive population's ear that it's the white people, go kill the white people, it's the white people who killed your ancestors, who enslaved everyone, who... My God. I mean, this, you know, is the pen mightier than the sword. Well, in this case, the word is mightier than the sword. And the population explosion that has occurred in South Africa as the result of Western medicine, Western forms of government, Western food production methods, and so on, you take the Westerners out of the equation, it all goes back to zero. It all resets. It all, you know, like when when the machine stops working and you don't know how to fix it, well, you have to find a way to live without the machine if you can. And this idea that you can just set something in motion and it doesn't matter who's in charge and it doesn't matter, average IQ between population doesn't matter. It is cruel beyond words. And the other thing too is it doesn't pr just provoke racism, anti-white racism, 
among the blacks, it promotes anti-black racism among the whites. Because without knowledge of these IQ differences, what happens is people say, well, the blacks are lazy, the blacks are shiftless, they, you know, and it's like, no, they're not. <laughs> it's hard work to survive in the bushveld. It's hard work to survive in such a dry climate. No, not lazy. Energy conservation makes a good deal of sense when food is abundant and it takes a lot of water and, and energy to move around in the hot sun. They're not lazy. They're not incompetent. They're not, I don't know. It, it, it's not that way. You wouldn't look at somebody with an IQ of 75 and say, well, that person is just not trying hard enough to be a physicist. That person is just not concentrating enough. They're just too lazy to pick up a book. It's like, no, for God's sakes, have some compassion for these differences. Have some sensitivity for these differences. We all have to work together as a human community or we're going to tear each other apart. Um, yes, uh, and um, I have to say, I do believe the government is, um, is is causing a lot of these problems because with this um, endless welfare that's being paid to people to have babies, there's no investment in the children at all. Um, it's it's not and it's not funny at all to hear uh, about um, a, a black family having more than six, seven, eight kids, for example. Well, the average birth and rate is over five. So, given that some yes. people are infertile and some people have fewer, there are certainly some pretty big families out there. Um, yes, yes, and and um, I, I have family members that um, has worked previously with um, grants and social well welfare and so forth, um, and they say it's. Um, Basically, it's not a lot of money they get um, from the government, um, but that uh, for, for a poor person to all of a sudden have a couple of rands um, who previously had nothing, um, that's a lot of money. And then they have this incentive to, to, to get children, and there's no investment in the children. It's basically, um, we're going to have eight of them. If a couple of them um, survive... Good news. Well, um, they get it's, paid it's, per child, usually through the welfare yes, state, yes. right? So, yes, sure, exactly. just have kids. You get paid for yes, it. It's a job. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of corruption as well with um, with identity fraud and so forth. Because the longer they can convince the government this child is um, uh, underage, the longer they can get um, welfare from, from the government. Um, and this, I, I believe it's um, approximately like 25% give or take of, of the budget of the government every year goes to, to welfare projects, basically. And this is, this is very, very unsustainable. And, um, and if you look from a, a point, um, if you, uh, the, the families, they, they, they're also very, very broken because um, they're all single parent households. Um, like if you were to talk to to, to a, a black family and stuff, it's 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 not a funny thing to hear that their dad ran away, for example, um, or, or or in many cases it's their grandparents taking care of these children. Um, it's it's uh, it's completely irresponsible. There's there's, there's no responsibility anymore, um, and and those children grow up with with broken households, broken families. Um, and that does really, really do damage to, the, to those children um, later in life. No, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, you know, I charge with those who, who push back against conversations about IQ differences 
you have also the blood of people in the Middle East on your hands because the idea of nation building, the idea of we're going to destroy a dictator and the country's going to flourish, well, that in the West comes off the examples in the post-Second World War period of Japan and Germany. These two countries were bombed end to end. Japan had massive amounts of hyper-incendiary bombing throughout late 1944 and into 1945. And of course, the structures in Japan, well, they're largely made of wood. So you had thousand plane raids over Tokyo that could kill up to 100,000 people a night. You had two atomic bombs. Germany was laid waste virtually from end to end, from the east by the Russians, from the west by the Allies. And they rebuilt themselves very quickly after their dictators. The emperor was diminished and Hitler committed suicide. So after their dictators were eliminated or diminished, they rebuilt themselves and look at, to a slower degree, what happened, well, to a faster degree, what has happened in China after the end of communism. And to a smaller degree, what happened in Russia after the end of communism. But these are very high IQ countries. So of course they're going to solve problems. Of course they're going to rebuild. Of course they're going to end up with relative freedoms and a relative free market because it's very high IQ countries. Japan's very high. Germany is one of the highest in Europe. China's extraordinarily high. Well, there's, there's Russia. <laughs> Not quite as high, which is I don't think why they've done quite as well. But the idea that we can just, that, that, that the West, this coalition just Go and kill Saddam Hussein, take over his government, and you're going to get some magical Jeffersonian democracy emerging out of the ashes. No, I'm sorry. Iraq's got an IQ in the 80s. It's not going to happen. It's not going to, you've got cousin marriage all over the place. You have, like, it's not going to happen. The treatment of children is brutal, although that was to some degree true in Japan and China as well. But nonetheless, this fantasy that we can do this, there is so much blood on the hands of people who deny this essential conversation. And it is so important. If we could have these conversations, we could calm some of the rage in the disadvantaged communities. We could also calm some of the guilt. My God, the guilt. Guilt and rage are two things that go hand in hand. Let me, I'm sure you've had this experience too. Let me sort of touch on it very briefly. And it sounds very, a very personal way to describe a very big problem, but I think it's important to mention. So when I was younger... I was very self-critical to the point, I think, where it was too much. Now, it was good for undoing false beliefs and all that. But what happened was if I did something wrong, I would get very down on myself. And that actually invited people to be more mean to me. Because it's like, oh, man, I did this thing, you know, that was really bad. And then people, they kind of pile on. It's like self-criticism creates a vacuum filled by Almost the involuntary abuse of other people. Well, he's already beating up on himself. I'm piling in. Gives me a sense of power in the moment. And it's the same thing with this pathological altruism, this pathological guilt that white people have. Oh, I'm sorry we gave the world science and medicine and the free market and free societies and limited government. Boy, how terrible. I'm sorry we gave you all technology. How? I mean, come on. Medicine. Oh, terrible. Terrible stuff. Ooh, the worst people ever. We're, we're basically like Genghis Khan, except with antibiotics and soap. So it's um, this, this self-hatred, this self-condemnation, this pathological self-criticism of white people is horrendous. 
It is so destructive to the world as a whole. It's not helping the world. It's making the world worse. It may satisfy bullies in the moment. It's not helping the world at all. At all. And not that I'm saying yes. that whites should wake up every morning and say, how can we help the world? <laughs> like The world doesn't seem to appreciate it and uh, we gave it a good old shot. And uh, we're certainly trying with all of our demographics at the moment. It doesn't seem to be working out too well. But it's not anything to be guilty about that different groups of mammals developed different capacities in wildly different environments. It's like saying, I feel guilty that the giraffe has a really tall neck. I feel horribly guilty that koalas sleep a lot of the day. I feel so horrendously guilty that whales have nostrils on the top of their heads. Oh, wretched. Woe is me that certain lemurs seem to have prehensile tails. Oh, that terror and the horror. It's just adaptations to local environments, people. It's evolution. It's nobody's fault. It's a challenge to talk about, maybe a problem to solve. There's probably a lot of stuff we can do about it. But just getting raged and guilty and, and this manipulation and resource transfers and self-hatred and other hatred. I mean, this is this is a complete disaster. And there's only one remedy, which is why the left, who wants to continually sow these Iago-style divisions between all these groups, this is why the left tries to shut down every single conversation about these things, because it undoes the hatred they live on. Yes, no, definitely. Um, and I have to say also the left, they usually attack um, freedom of speech very, very, uh, one of the first things they attack. Um, of course, I have to give a silly example. Um, growing up in South Africa, our speech is being policed. Like you were taught um, growing up, you're not allowed to say certain words. You're not allowed to have certain debates. And, and it creates this numbness. And... Um, Basically, is um, many people um, in South Africa of the white population. You you would talk to them, and, and it's like they live in this bubble because they're not. They were taught during school, growing up, the media and everything. You're not allowed to talk about um, these things. You're not a. Your opinion doesn't matter. And um, and that's sadly what's starting to happen in Europe as well. With like Article Thirteen should 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 um, should, should definitely not go through because um, before the Europeans know it, um, they will have another hundred million uh, people from the third world moved into their countries. They're not allowed to speak up against it. They're not allowed to. Uh, for free debate about it and um, it will just um, destroy their, their society it will destroy their cultures and, and it's not it feels like many people don't realize it because they're not allowed to talk about it hmm. yeah so no, it is uh, it is and and i think what happens is i think the left is kind of hoping that that they can get enough of this demographic change in place that it becomes pointless or impossible to talk about it because the numbers are already in motion but um, I'm not sure we're there yet. But, uh, well, it, it seems that South Africa is certainly there. But I would say that these are essential conversations. If you care about blacks, if you care about whites, if you care about East Asians, you know, the three major races, we all got to stop hating and, and being afraid and so guilty. We, we need to. 
we need to and the only thing that can save us from this bottomless hatred and guilt and self-destruction and calm these jets is the truth is the truth and as long as we can speak the truth we have a chance when we can't well we just bunker down and and try and survive yes yes very very true um unfortunately the the few people um, in South Africa who are trying to speak up against this, um, like Afri Forum, for example, um, uh, today um, um, one of the uh, main people in in Afri Forum, um, Kali Kriel, for example, um, outside the the, court, um, he was... um, verbally abused and shouted out and so forth um, by by blacks for example and they've got this hatred and because Afri Thurum is trying to to talk about this and and get to a solution that will be beneficial for for all races but it's like the governments and and, and politicians they don't want it it's like they they thrive in this chaos um, especially with, with the voting season around the corner in South Africa, and I believe that's one of the main reasons um, why all these um, um, this 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 um, lies and, uh, and 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 struggles and um, everything is being brought up again. Um, it's it's basically politicians trying to be stay in power um, at the end of the day. Well, I think that's tragically true. They're not thinking about the long term. And the long term is not going to be the long term for a lot of people unless we start to actually wrestle and deal with these issues. But it's the exact opposite. It's true. The people who are, and I hate to be this whataboutism guy, like the, oh, the real racists are, but the people who are the real racists are the ones setting up disasters for various ethnicities around the world. And full-on hate on for the group that's running your technology, running your medicine, running your irrigation systems, running your farms, running your electricity, running your water. Well, full-on hatred for that group, the attack and destruction of that group is incredibly cruel to those who are going to be left behind. I mean, we see what's happening in Cape Town with the water. We're going to see what's happening, I'm sure, relatively soon to things like the electricity grid. Because when you take over something you can't particularly manage too well, there's a momentum. It lasts for a while, for sure, right? You go steal someone's car, you don't know how to maintain it, you can drive it around for a while, and then it's just going to start to fall apart. But that little while seems like, woohoo, I can't believe anyone takes care of these cars. This is easy. It's like, it's really not. It's really not. Oh, no. Um, yeah, interesting that you're bringing um, the electricity up. Um, uh, the, the, the company that supplies the electricity to, to South Africa is ESCOM, and this is basically a government state-owned um, uh, company. And also currently happening in the news is um, um, basically they're busy with strikes and protests and so forth because they they want like an unrealistic raise um, of, I, I believe it's 11 or 12%. Um, the workers. Um, so there's been a couple of blackouts in the last couple of weeks um, because they just, 
yeah, the unions are completely in control um, of 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 the of the workers, and and they tell the workers you don't going to go to work, and then Eskom runs into trouble, and yeah, and Eskom is also massively indebted. Um, it's got it's got. Um, uh, honestly, I don't think they're ever going to be able to to get out of their debts. It's just unbelievable, um, and that for matter goes for for many of the um, state-owned companies throughout South Africa. Um, they are completely ineffective. They are massively in debt. Um, most of the company's budget goes basically to employ people. Um, it doesn't really do much. They, they're creating positions that, like like no free enterprise will um, will in their right mind uh, create these positions. Um, I have to say, like for example, like um, uh, construction sites. Um, they will employ so many people um, on construction sites um, for 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 so-called health and safety um, uh, reasons, and all, all they do is they just have a flag and they just stand next to the construction site or the road project, and they just will be waving their flag. That's basically all they do, and and all of that costs money, and um, there's no money to pay for for. Um, for for silly things basically anymore in this country it's the, the the budget of this country is extremely tight right so what are your plans um it's um that that's the problem um you always sit with this debate in your head um sh- should i move should i not move to a different country um from a Economic standpoint, for example, it will make sense to move um, to 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 a overseas country, for example. But then you you still have got your family members, you've got your friends, and everyone in in the country. Um, and it's 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 one of those um, situations you don't really know what to do. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> Let let me ask this for you. Um, if you were in um, in my scenario, for example, or in an average um, South African scenario, what would your steps be? Would you um, try and um, speak up, like individuals like Aaron's Roots, for for example, and um, um, the state landers Steve Hofmeyer, or would you pack up your bags and leave to another country, maybe to Europe? And and um, always in the back of my head, I've got this. Um, thinking or thoughts of well, Europe might be in thirty years' time where South Africa currently is, um, with the rate they importing the third world. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are these are tough questions because, of course, we live separate lives and and so on. I've I gave up early friends and family for philosophy. So for, for you to say, well, I got friends and family. So, you know, it's like, well, I, I gave them up not for fears of racial civil war, but because I wanted to do what I'm doing now and they weren't supportive and they were in opposition and undermining. And, and so, you know, I may be the wrong guy for, wow, the real value of your friends and family from your childhood and so on. But <laughs> I would say that even if you think the next boat might sink, it's still worth getting off the boat that is sinking. You know, you, you get your cancer treated even if it might come back. And so getting out of a bad situation into a better situation, I think, is important right now. And if you're a young man 
And you can get to a place where you have freedom of speech. Of course, in particular, America is still the place for freedom of speech. You know, the, the Supreme Court has affirmed many times that there's no such thing as hate speech. There's just free speech because hate speech is just a made up term for tyranny and censorship. So if you want to help South Africa, the question is, from where can you best do that? Well, I don't know if you can do it in South Africa that well. Can you do it outside of South Africa to raise awareness, to raise knowledge, to raise facts from a place where you have genuine free speech? It's pretty good free speech in Canada as well, too. There are places, I wouldn't necessarily say England or Germany or Sweden, where free speech is not even remotely secure. But I would say get to a place where you can speak the truth without being prosecuted. Now, you say, well, I've got my friends and my family. Sure, which is good, because that means that you have a place for them to go if they want to leave too. Hey, come and live in Dirktown. It's wonderful over here. So there are things that can be done. Now, that doesn't mean you have to leave forever. Let's say that you go and you make a case and we all make the case and the Chinese study of genetics moves ahead and the, the science catches up and eventually, I mean, there'll still be flat earthers who deny human biodiversity, but it'll become a settled sort of deal. And then we can actually start solving problems rather than just causing problems. And then maybe there'll be a way to go back once the hatred has cooled down, once understanding has diminished the hysteria of race relations, then maybe there's a way to go back. But, Dirk, come on, you know, as well as I do, you're a smart young man, you know as well as I do where this is going, right? This doesn't slow down. Historically, this doesn't stop. This only tends to escalate. Yes, um, especially if you look at the history of many, many previous um, African states. Or um, Germany. Yes, Germany as well. Um, it never ends well. It never. No, and those who cross their fingers and hope for the best, history tends to not deal with them very kindly. Yes. Um, the jumpiest tend that. to live. I hate to put it that way, but like you and I are walking in the woods and there's a crack of a twig somewhere and I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. And you're like, I think that's a bear. Well, if it's nothing, what have you lost? If it's a bear, I'm dead. So I think jumpy is, is not, not bad <laughs> at all. Not a bad place to be. Yes. As um, long as you uh, jump somewhere, right? Mm, yes, yes, very, very true. Um, and then, like you said, um, uh, luckily, um, America has got um, uh, the, the Constitution is, is very well written and, and does allow for freedom of speech and, and people can speak up um, against um, things like this, for example. Yeah, if you end up speaking from where you are and you get into trouble with the law, you run afoul of some free speech law, or some policeman who, you know, you don't have any particular defense, there's no constitution, there's no First Amendment, and so on. I don't know that you're doing that much good being a martyr in your home country. Whereas if you can go to a place where you can broadcast uh, and get the facts out and sleep at night, I can certainly see an upside. And the other thing too, Dirk, is that you got to have a life too. You can't just be a activist you know that's a way of ending up as a monodimensional being 
without balance. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a wife, I have a child, I have friends, we goof off, we, you know, we, we play video games together, we, uh, you know, we have barbecues, we go swimming. Uh, it's, you got to have fun in your life. And the problem when you're living in an extremity of a situation like is going on in South Africa, if you're white, it's hard to have a balance in life. I mean, if you have kids, they're not going to play outside, are they? What are they going to do? Video games, um, tablets, and iron bars on the window. Come on. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I loved playing outside. The glorious anarchy of find your own playmates in an unstructured environment is one of the main reasons I think I ended up becoming a free thinker or a thinker. Do you want your, you know, your kids should, if you want to have kids, your, ch- your kids should choose. And there's plenty of places in the world where you can go where your kids can roam around a safe neighborhood, finding cool kids to play with and becoming self-sufficient and independent thereby. Whereas how are you going to explain to your kids why they're, why they're growing up in an eight by 12 concrete block with broken glass on the tops of the walls? Um, yes, yes, um, I do agree with that. Um, and I have to say, it's it's, it's sad to see actually how um, the sense of communities um, throughout South Africa actually disappeared as the walls went up. Because um, you don't see your neighbor because he's behind a wall um, or a fence. Uh, everyone is always locked up. Everyone is always self-consciously thinking about security. So, so, so the sense of community is, is definitely... Um, not there like it used to be, say, 15, 16 years ago. Um, well, I was and, last and in South Africa, oh, just 35 years ago. And I roamed all over the place, in the bush, the jungle, in the, um, on the veldts, in the towns. I just, I love to walk. I've always loved to walk. And... That's no, no more, no longer. You can't really walk around town as a white person. Probably can't even walk around town as a black person if you've got any any kind of social no, no, no. status, right? No, no, no. I also wanted to bring up um, is is like black on black violence is also very very bad, especially like in the townships. Um, it's it's, uh, it's it's just completely bonkers. Um, it's it's very very dangerous. Um, and and um, yeah, in South Africa, if you if you are a hiker or you you're enthusiastic about nature, for example, it's it's very very risky to to, to go on a hiking trail. Um, uh, Cape Town, for example, there, there has been scenarios where people would hike um, cable table mountain and so forth, where they will be attacked and robbed. Um, that's that's something that you do read um, in the newspapers. So, so it's it's not it's not as free as it used to be thirty five years ago. Yeah, um, uh, especially when I talk to the uh, the older generations, um, and and that goes for black and white. Um, they will say definitely the country was far far safer um, in, in the old days com- compared to to today's um, uh, society. It's uh, and it's, there's basically no consequences of committing a crime in South Africa because the police is so incompetent. Um, if I just give you a silly scenario that happened to me a couple of days ago, um, I was at the police station to to report a case, 
And when I walked out of the police station, uh, my my vehicle's um, windscreen was smashed with a beer bottle, for example. That's in front of a police station. Um, so, so if you commit a crime, um, nothing is really going to happen to you with the incompetent um, police we've got here. Well, um, and I, I you and know, the, I, I hate to nag you while you're in your situation, but this is just the kind of language that I resist. Rightly or wrongly, I mean, the idea of saying that this is incompetence, if again, if you look at the IQ disparities, I think it's not an appropriate term. You know, it's not incompetence, it's just biodiversity. And now you could say, well, relative to East Asians, it's, but you know, so what, right? I mean, we don't say to a Japanese guy of average height, you're short because the Swedish or the Danish people are really tall. You don't, no, he's not short. He's average height for a a Japanese guy. And so having, it's it's really tough to reframe this, but I think that there's such a pejorative sense where we use the word incompetent. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair because we know the differences. So for those who, and this is from the book Kill the Boer, which is important to read, uh, B-O-E-R. About half a million South Africans have been murdered since 1994. A South African still has a bigger chance of being murdered in this country than citizens in countries suffering from terror attacks. In the financial year of 2015 to 2016, 623,223 contact crimes, that's murder, assault, robbery, and sexual offenses, were reported. One year. Those are the ones who that are reported. We can't even imagine, given, as you say, how unable which to me seems better than incompetent, but how unable the police force is, the fact that there are so many reported crimes would indicate that to me there would be many, many more that were not reported because people can, can figure things out. I mean, I think a lot of people just report stuff for insurance reasons. It's kind of what you got to do and so on. But it's crazy stuff. Uh, the, the level of crime is absolutely astonishing. Um, yes, um, it's, uh, it's always funny when you meet someone from, from, uh, overseas country and, um, you first have to give them a safety briefing. Um, when they arrive in South Africa, you tell them, uh, look after your handbag, for example, and have it open, always lock your doors. You don't drive in, uh, with, with your windows down just for in case you're being hijacked and so forth. And. It's just that, that disbelief in their faces when you tell these things to them, like this this can't be true that you're telling me. Um, and the sad reality is um, three, four months later when they head back home, um, they say it's, um, it's, uh, it's astonishing. They understand exactly uh, what you mean by that, um, that it's, it's unsafe in many, many places in this country. Yeah. Um. South Africa has been described as, and I quote, one of the least lawful countries on earth. Its rape and murder rates reached number one and three in the world in 2010. A 2013 report by UNODC, which is United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, ranked South Africa ninth in the world for its high murder rate. Say, oh, ninth? Well, there has been a slight decline in the murder rate ranking, but only because since the Ferguson effect, America's become more violent. So it's displacing things a little bit. Um, the downward trend in violence in South Africa 
only bottomed out in 2011. Since then, the murder rate in South Africa has increased every year until publication of this book, which is 2018. During the year of 2007 to 2008, this stuff, like, it's, it's hard to fathom. About 50.4 people were murdered on average every day in South Africa. 50? Almost 50 and a half people murdered every day in South Africa. It uh, declined down to 42.6, 2011, 2012, increased again to 52.1 murders per day on average for the whole of 2016, 2017. This amounts to one murder in South Africa every 28 minutes. Over the course of this conversation, three people have been murdered. One murder every 28 minutes, and these are the reported ones. Yes, and um, the ironic thing is, 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 is um, there's a lot of communities who definitely don't report many of the crimes. Sure, um, it's uh, in some places um, in, in the country, it's um, absolutely lawless. Um, this, uh, they don't even obey um, the street signs, for example, um, traffic lights. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter if the traffic light is red or green. You you try and cross the cross. Uh, uh, to get on your destination, so um, so, so it's uh, it's it's devastating. Um, they, and just for know. for those who want to check out the book, it's called "Kill the Boer" B O E R by Ernst Rotes E R N S T R O E T S. Kill the Boer: Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders. It's commissioned by the Afro Forum, and uh, we'll put a link to the book below. Uh, it is harrowing reading, but essential, I do believe so. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, you have one life, my friend. You have one life, and you have some choices. I'm working, as are other people, to try and bring the basic facts, science, and reality to the world. But who knows how far we're going to get. That's not up to me. What's up to me is how honestly and with what degree of integrity and compassion I bring these facts to people's attention, whether they listen or not, is really up to them. So who knows if if this information does become more widely accepted and we can begin to deal with these problems as an intelligent species that hopefully is not hell-bent on its own destruction, then there may be some turnaround. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard to teach people to stop hating when they've invested their life into that hatred. It's hard to undo the lies of many, many decades. It's hard to undo resentment when people have staked their entire identity on blame. So I'm not going to say it's a losing battle, but it's not a battle we're certain of winning. And uh, I think that you've got to try and find a way to live your life. We're not, we're not here to serve some massive larger cause. We are here to do good, but I think that the doing of good is Im important in your personal life first. You know, have integrity in your relationships, have love in your life, have support, have people who care and have a sense of security and safety and a little bit of peace and quiet, a little bit of calm reflection and the love and support of people in your life for whatever difficult truths you have to speak seems to me a pretty essential foundation for what needs to be done in the world. And I would certainly look into that. You certainly don't owe the country anything, I, I believe. You owe virtue, I think. You owe integrity. But that's a complicated thing that is certainly not involved in self-sacrifice. The pathological altruism 
that occurs among Europeans and their descendants can sometimes lead us to, I'm going to stand and fight. It's the right thing to do. And it's like, A, I don't know that it is. And B, you, you really don't have to. Yes, no. Um, like you said, it's a very difficult conversation to have um, throughout the world. And, and um, speaking up and um, having a reasonable or open discussion um, is, is, is very, very, very important. Um, and, and I wish the world will have these debates. Um, and because that's the only solution is, um, is speech and um, um, sadly also common sense, which is um, severely <laughs> lacking in many cases. Well, listen, I um, hope you let us know what, uh, what goes on. I'm going to move on to the next caller. I, I really, really appreciate yeah. you calling in. This is something that we in the West need to, I don't care what it takes, you know, prop your eyelids open with toothpicks, clockwork orange style, and, and look at this data. Look at South Africa. Read the books. Listen to people like this caller. Watch Farmlands, the documentary about Lauren Southern. Read The Bell Curve. Listen to the interviews that I have on this show and speak the truth. We have to. I know it, I know it can be tough. I know it can be difficult. But the only thing that's worse than speaking the truth is living in self-destructive lies. So thank you very much for your call. Thank I really, you really much. appreciate it, Dirk. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again. No, thank you very much for all the wonderful work you do. And um, everyone that's always on your show as well. Thank you very much. Enjoy your evening. Okay, up next we have Lyndon. Lyndon wrote in and said, I've often heard you disparage circumcision, but data shows that women overwhelmingly prefer circumcised sexual partners. Data also shows that men are overwhelmingly not satisfied with their own abilities to last during sex. If circumcision indeed reduces sensitivity, as I've heard you claim, then wouldn't this reasonably be expected to improve a man's ability to last longer, thus increasing their own sense of self-esteem? When combined with all the purported health and hygiene benefits, isn't it reasonable to conclude that circumcision is in a man's best interest and to want to give your son every advantage that you can in the sexual marketplace? That's from Lyndon. Lyndon, how you doing? Good. Hi, Stefan. Nice to chat with you. Are you circumcised yourself? Uh, I don't really want to go into my personal status because I don't think that it's actually relevant to my how I came to my position. Because I used to be against circumcision, and it was after I examined all of the science and papers on it that I came to this position. So it's not really my own like personal status that made me become pro-circumcision. All right, so we'll talk about penises, just not yours. All right, that's that's uh, that's not my preference, but that's certainly a choice that I'll I'll live with. So give me uh, give me the case. Let me let me hear about how removing a third of the baby's penis skin is a good thing to do. All right. Well, we know that there's a bunch of health benefits, uh, like all kinds of uh, what are they? Low lowered risks of diseases, lowered risk of HIV, uh, lowered risk of herpes, HPV, that sort of thing, uh, uterary, uh, urinary tract infection, lower risk, uh, lower risk of penile cancer. Uh, and actually, those can also mean lower risk for your female partner to get cervical cancer as well, if you don't have HPV. Uh, so those are like some of the health benefits, the some of the myriad. Um, but for me, that I just kind of view that as like a bonus. That's like 
the the gravy that you get the for me the sort of the compelling reason to do it is that women prefer it so it seems like it's going to give you an advantage with the ladies and i'm going to then go out on a limb and say that if you believe that women prefer it then you're circumcised and they've not complained so um, you don't have to confirm or deny i'm just going to no go, no go this with is that. This is based off scientific studies where they've asked women and it's like upwards of 90% say they prefer it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not circumcised. I slept with some ladies. Not one single complaint, not one single bit of hesitation, not one single problem the entire time. I'm just, I know that the plural of anecdote is not data, but I'm just telling you my (laughs) particular experience and men that I've talked to uh, who are not circumcised. It's never been. See, the thing is, once you've got an erection, you're not covered anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you've already put on the hoodie. And, or you, I guess you've already put on the turtleneck and it's down below your chin. So hopefully when you're in a state of sexual arousal with a woman, you're pointing to the ceiling fan, not to the toes, uh, penis-wise. So by then, your penis is already extended and the foreskin has retracted. So I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, they don't see this, what do they call it, the elephant or the anteater or something like that, right? Yeah, the anteater, yeah. Yeah, so you have to ask How does the girl even, is she sitting there, you know, like measuring things, you know, like looking for scar tissue? Like it's usually not too bright unless you're on a porn set, I guess. It's usually not too bright. And by the time you're naked, hopefully you're, you got this nice diamond hard boner and your foreskin is retracted anyway. Right. Well, I think that the hygiene is when you ask the women what it is about it, that's one thing that they'll tend to bring up is that they're, they've encountered hygiene issues with guys who weren't circumcised. And I, not to get too graphic or anything, but I think that like it's with the oral sex where this really comes into play. So if you like oral sex and you want it to be enthusiastic from your partner and everything like that, you're probably better off being circumcised. Wait, are you? I'm sorry. I, I mean, we get, if we're going to get graphic, let's get graphic. So, are you saying that women are given blowjobs to guys who don't wash their penis? Well, because I got to think that's kind of a judgment issue on the part of the ladies, you know? Like, if he's got brown teeth and pit stains, and you know what I mean? He's got fur in his ass, then maybe you don't want to go ducking for diseased apples, right? Bobbing for <laughs> fruit that ain't ripe or too ripe, I guess. I mean, you can't, you can't always have it washed. Like, right. If you're circumcised, you're just more likely to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Cause you never know when that, that shoe's going to drop. Well, like, you uh, do you, get what, some what you sense do? once you become a kid. Uh, I just wanted to, <laughs> once you have kids, sorry, once you have kids, you do get a bit more of a sense. Spontaneity tends to go down just a smidge, but that's <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I hear that. But, um, if it does, uh, if you do encounter spontaneity, you're not always going to be able to like run to the sink and, and you know, rinse your dick off under the sink. So, so are you it's, saying that you can use in general without anesthetic that you can basically slice or saw off a third of a baby's penis skin because some decades down the road – he might want a spontaneous blowjob and not have access to soap. Do, do you feel that that's a balanced perspective? In other words, if you say to an adult, you can have a circumcision performed on you as an adult 
just on the off chance once or twice or three times a year, you want to get a Hummer in the woods and there's no soap around. Or, you know, you could just carry some soap and water around in your backpack or in your car or whatever. Like, do, do you think that's a balanced perspective? Do you think that that's something you would do? I think that you're maybe downplaying the I love well look look, I don't want to overplay it either because it's I don't think that this is a huge issue. I I agree with you that you can be uncircumcised and have a good sex life and all that. I don't think this is like some critical thing, but it just seems like if women prefer it, there if and if the health benefits outweigh the risks of doing it. I don't see what is the big grievance that you're supposed to have if your parents have this done for you. That's what I don't like. You're you're saying, oh, why are we cutting off their skin? And it's like, well, because they're better off without it. That's why. Well, okay. They're better off without it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. So let's let's take these one by one. Low risk of sexually transmitted diseases, right? Yeah, which are on the rise in in America. Right. So I'm sure you know about basic economics and incentives, right? So if men believe that there's a lower chance of sexually transmitted diseases if they're not circumcised, then they may be. Sorry, if they're circumcised, there's less of a chance of sexually transmitted diseases. They may be tempted to not use a condom because they say, well, I have less of a chance of getting a sexually transmitted disease, so I won't need a condom. So it may actually raise their chances of getting sexually transmitted diseases. Now, you can, of course, use a condom. And a condom is almost infinitely better at reducing STDs than simply being uncircumcised, right? Or so, so yes. than being circumcised, right? So uh, now, of course, you, you shouldn't really have to worry about STDs when, when you're a kid. By the time you become an adult... You can use a condom, or of course, you can be in a marriage, say, with a monogamous partner, and then you don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. So there's lots of things that you can do to eliminate or reduce the risk of sexually transmitted diseases that has nothing to do with um, being circumcised. When it comes to urinary tract Infections. So, yeah. So, the doctors who like circumcision say that there's a lower risk of UTIs in circumcised baby boys. Now, nobody knows exactly why this is. It could be that some of the parents don't know how to properly handle a, a penis that's intact. So, maybe they've been told to retract the foreskin, their son's foreskin, in order to clean it when the child is still young. Of course, the foreskin should never be forcibly retracted. And so maybe they're getting UTIs because of that. Now, because, of course, it's indoor plumbing rather than an outdoor plumbing scenario, girls are about eight times more likely to get STDs compared to boys, even circumcised boys, and UTIs in both girls and boys are easily treatable with antibiotics. So again, I'm not really sure that it's that necessary. And if it's STDs, then why not just wait for the child to grow up? You don't need to protect a baby against STD, so not just wait for an adult to uh, to do it, right? And when it comes to, and then penile cancer is very, very rare, of course, right? It's like, I think it's 1% or even less of, of male cancers. And, you know, whether there's a relationship, whether it's good or bad and so on, well, there is soap, right? So, I mean, to me, if it comes down to cleanliness, soap is the same as 
not having uh, a foreskin, right? Now, penile cancer is very rare. Breast cancer is much more common. So would you suggest removing the breasts of female babies because they can survive without them? They can breastfeed through formula and, and so on, right? Would you suggest removing the breasts of female babies in order to reduce or eliminate their chance of getting breast cancer? No, of course not. It's like, it's like I said, the, the health benefits to me are just sort of a bonus, but none of the like sexual benefits that men get from circumcision could be applied to removing a woman's breasts or to female circumcision. Like those same arguments don't work when you switch the gender. So why not? I would well, I'm not, there's no studies that show that men prefer, uh, circumcised women that I'm aware. I'm not an expert Wait, on females. Are you females, kidding me? You, you don't think in Somalia men expect for women to have been genitally mutilated? What are you uh, talking yeah, about? Do, do you think that men, I mean, good heavens. If, uh, if, if, if men preferred women who didn't undergo female genital mutilation in certain cultures, it would start pretty quickly, right? I, I, I'm not really an expert in female circumcision, so I can't really... No, but you understand but, it, it happens because men accept it or may even prefer it, right? Because if men rejected it, if men said, I'm never getting married yeah, but it, to no, it a woman to, who's had that procedure done, then the procedure would stop in less than one generation. All right, well, cor correct. Yeah, you're probably right about that. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason that they like it is because it reduces the female's pleasure. Is that... Yeah, but that's the same reason why circumcision was introduced, right? Was to reduce male pleasure and also to diminish uh, the, the pleasure that comes from masturbation, right? So you're saying that we should prefer something that reduces our pleasure. <laughs> I mean, come on. If you have trouble lasting as a man, I don't know, put a, put a, <laughs> put a mask of Margaret Thatcher on your girlfriend. I don't know. Put some nipple clamps on. Stick an electrode well, up mean, your ass. It, you know, tickle your balls with a cactus. I don't know. But you can do lots of things that don't involve mutilating your your penis. It's it's like the vast majority of men. They, I think they did like a Kinsey study where it was half of men last less than two minutes. Well, God, just go twice. Jeez, just <laughs> well, go twice. But the the thing is, is that I mean, we can joke about it, but the men, what they the study showed was, is it bothers the men more than that bothers the women. Like they feel uh, inadequate and a sense of shame because they can't last long enough, and you know they. Oh come uh, on! I mean, I don't, a, I don't know about any, any of this stuff, but if you're having trouble lasting, I don't know, have more sex masturbate an hour before so you can like there's so many things that you can do that don't involve mutilating a baby <laughs> you know, like these are not problems that that are a big deal to solve and i gotta tell you this too man if if you're with a woman who says i'd really prefer it if you'd had your penis mutilated that's a cold-hearted cow man i'll tell you that right now if she's like well it's not that i love you it's not that it gives you more pleasure to have your penis be intact. It's not that I find it objectionable that males are branded as disposable in this kind of way. Like, can you imagine saying, well, if, if, you, if you come to a woman with a normal vagina and, and labia and all of that, and you say, oh, that's pretty gross. Oh, 
I really wish you'd had that stuff hacked off as a baby, man. That would be way better. Oh, I don't like that normal vagina. I mean, do not sleep with that guy. You know, that's horrible. That's horrible. It's a horrible thing. I wish you'd had your penis mutilated as a baby is a good reason to put your pants on and run through the damn window. Oh, and one out of 11,000 children boys who are circumcised die from it. That seems kind of risky too, by the way. Also, it's a great deal of pain when you have been circumcised. And of course, your, your penis with the raw open wound is put into your diaper where the uric acid in your pee and all other kinds of goop is swimming around there. It's pretty nasty with all that kind of stuff as well. So. You know, if you want to make the case to an adult that they got to go and get a third of their penis skin hacked off, well, you got to give them the facts. First of all, it will make their penis smaller. Of course, right? Because it's tight skin pulling, pulling back. There is no evidence, actual evidence, that being circumcised prevents a man from getting an STD, including HIV, abstinence or safe sex. Will, will do it. So people say the foreskin is unclean, which is like saying, I've got to cut off your arm because your armpits get sweaty. No, it's not unclean. It's protective. If you take the foreskin off, the penis is more vulnerable to injury, to abrasion, to desensitization. It's really not complicated. <laughs> this is not, you don't need to build a little Meccano set and a whole superstructure of toothpicks to wash the head of your penis under, underneath your foreskin. Pull, wash, rinse, done. Easy, uh, easy peasy. The American Cancer Society does not recommend circumcision for the prevention of penile uh, cancer. And uh, the foreskin, of course, this is from circumcisiondebate.org. The foreskin is a sensory organ with thousands of nerves and blood vessels as well as muscular tissue. It plays an important role in foreplay, sexual activity, and pleasure and ejaculation. Circumcised men are three to four times more likely to experience erectile dysfunction than intact men. Now, you don't necessarily have to answer this, but if I were to pose to you, Lyndon, the question, would you rather have a risk of having an orgasm in less than two minutes or not being able to get it up at all? I'm pretty sure you'd go with the risk of the former rather than the latter. And that is just really, really important to understand. In 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a report they said the benefits are not great enough to recommend circumcision for all baby boys. The benefits of newborn circumcision outweigh the risk. The true incidence of complications after newborn circumcision is unknown. Physician groups in Europe, the United Kingdom, and Australia condemn infant and child circumcision. It's not medically beneficial and violates children's most basic human rights. Circumcision fails to meet the commonly accepted criteria for the justification of preventive medical procedures in children. Circumcision causes post-operative pain. Circumcision can have serious long-term consequences. Circumcision constitutes a violation of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of the Child. Circumcision conflicts with the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. Do you know a lot of people die from bacteria that accumulates because they've got gum pockets or receding gum lines or whatever it is, right? And they swallow this bacteria, it can harm their heart and so on. Does that mean that we should pull the teeth of people? No, of course not. We, we don't do, we don't remove healthy skin, healthy tissue, part of a healthy organ 
because maybe at some point, I mean, that's not how medicine works. You work to prevent, you give education, and if there's a problem, you deal with it. But this idea that we are just and fair in mutilating without anesthetic for the most part, certainly without effective anesthetic, that we are just and fair in mutilating the penises of babies. That is not right. There's no one who would go from zero to circumcision in any rational context in the present. If it wasn't something that was common, say, in the Jewish community, if it wasn't something that was common in other communities, if it wasn't something that had been promoted by Kellogg way back in the day in order to eliminate the self-abuse of masturbation, there's no way we'd sit there and say, if this wasn't a common practice, if this wasn't something that was commonly accepted. There's no way we'd sit there and say, ah, you know what needs to go? A third of the penis skin of the boys when they're babies. Now, the fact that it's there and happening already for a variety of religious and fundamentalist hysterical reasons, well, that generally tends to be something that we justify because it's already there. But we'd never sit there and say, let's start doing this if it wasn't something that was already in play. All right, so that's my stuff. I'm certainly here, or happy to hear your, your response. All right. There's a, there's a lot there. First of all, what you call mutilation, I call augmentation. I mean, it's part of the... You no, can say no, that, no, no, no. You can't you call can it say augmentation. That no, no, no. You're removing the, something. Yeah, but it's part of... You're making it better. You're making it uh, live up to the objective beauty standard, which is what you would say if, something, if somebody... The objective... I'm sorry to interrupt you when you're just right, starting, if, but what are you saying? Like, the objective like beauty standard? If like 90 plus percent of women prefer it, then it's safe to say that it's part of the objective beauty standard, right? In the same way that if like most women prefer you to be like muscular and tall and have hair and stuff like that, then we can say that these things are basically part of the objective beauty standard. Oh, so you say that surgery should be performed against people's will if they do not meet some objective beauty standard. That's a general well, principle that you have. It couldn't be just about male penises because that would be very sexist. So it would be in general, right? I mean, I mean, why would you assume that it's against their will it, when it's in their best interests? No, because they're babies. Of course, it's against their will. They can't give assent. And they yeah, wouldn't I mean, give assent either if, if they could. That's probably true, actually. But that's part of the good thing about doing it when you're young because the, the cost is so much lower. What do you mean the cost? Like like the, the – well, not only the financial cost but the, the pain. You heal much quicker. There's less risks. That's why all the, the doctors recommend to do it in the first year or the, actually the first six months, right? So well, No, it could be even always, worse though. You, you know that, that – sorry to interrupt you again but you know that stress hormones in babies who are circumcised are higher six months after. Like it's like welcome to the world. We're now sawing off a third of your penis. You don't think that has an effect on the baby? Yeah, but we can't say that it's necessarily a negative effect. It could actually be a positive effect. Oh, my God. You didn't just say that. That 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 for the baby, it's certainly negative, right? Well, no, not necessarily in the long term. There's a 2007. No, no, for the babies. Forget the long term. For the babies, it's a horrifying thing. Well, the babies grow up to be men, though. It's, it's the same person. Okay, right? I, I will accept that. <laughs> so 
they did a study in 2017 uh, called Understanding Long-Term Effects of Infant Male Circumcision. They found that the men who were early, circum- early childhood circumcised had more testosterone and less oxytocin. Uh, so they were lower in empathy uh, and that made them more self-reliant, independent and non-affiliative. You know, I actually have a theory. Wait, I'm sorry. About- so the men who were circumcised ended up with less empathy? Yeah. And did they adjust that for ethnicity? Because testosterone levels and empathy are not equally distributed among the races. So it really depends who they tested. I don't see anything about race from what I've seen on the study. Just something to look at. Okay. I, I think this was, uh, I'm not sure where this was. Let me see. Uh, Aris University. Oh, Copenhagen. Okay. So it was done in. Copenhagen, I guess. Um, I have a theory about that, actually, which is that, like, you know, we have this pathological empathy in our society. We this this love of victim culture. And I think of this this victim culture when I hear people whinging about circumcision and in Europe, they don't circumcise, uh, you know, commonly. And then they got all these Muslims coming in who are circumcised, raping their women. The soy boys don't do anything. They just roll over. They don't defend their country. They don't defend their women. Uh, maybe if they had a little more testosterone, a little less empathy, they'd be able to to d- stick up for their women. So anyway, okay, the point is – I mean I don't even know what to say to a hypothesis like that. You understand. It's completely untestable, 99% bullshit and – we're just going to have to move on. I mean, it's a statement you're making, but I mean, we, I can't possibly evaluate that in any rational context. Well, the, the, the point is to say that this uh, stress, this cortisol, whatever that the babies get, that it has a negative effect on them. You can't, you can't prove that or test that in the same way, right? Wait. So basically the, 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 the infant equivalent of being attacked by a wild animal and having the most sensitive part of your anatomy chewed at and half ripped off your body you say, come on man are you saying that that's not a negative for the baby no no, I, no well not when it's got so many benefits to it no no in the for term. the baby in the long term it's because got the so benefits, many benefits. <laughs> you've got data that says there are benefits i've got data that says there aren't benefits now that debate isn't being had about smoking or cancer right so what are, we can't what are we got to throw out the well. There's all these benefits, right? I mean, what are the benefits to smoking? That seems like a hard case to make. What do you mean? What are the? Be- of course, there are benefits to smoking, in terms of that's why people do it. Smoking raises testosterone. Smoking makes you more concentrated, alert. Nicotine is a pleasurable drug. I mean, this, this, right? But what I'm saying is that. We don't have debates about whether smoking is good for you or bad for you in the long run. We all have recognized that smoking is, is very bad for you, right? And so when we're having debates after so much data about whether circumcision is good or bad for you, we have to throw out that data. Like we have to throw out because there's no answer to it. I mean, certainly I believe the stuff which says, yeah, hacking a third of the penis skin off the baby is pretty bad uh it's terrible and we would never do that to an adult like we'd never find an adult who'd been in the car crash who was unconscious 
and say, well, that, that guy's not circumcised. We'll fix his ribs and we'll cut off a third of his penis skin. Because, you know, he's already out, right? Because that would be horrible, right? Now, here's uh, some from a study. The long-term behavioral consequences of circumcision are underexplored, along with a marked increase of cortisol. Changes in mother-infant interactions have been observed after circumcision, including disrupted feeding and weaker attachment. This might lead to a reduction in oxytocin, which in turn increases testosterone availability. The present research aims to investigate the long-term effects of early infant male circumcision on the adult man. We hypothesize that circumcision might lead to an enhanced male endocrine configuration characterized by low oxytocin and high testosterone levels. I think this is in support to what you're saying, that there's higher testosterone levels among... Uh, and, and look, I, I, I have no doubt that brutalizing people can produce people with less empathy. <laughs> and of course, that, isn't that the whole point of basic training? At least how it used to be done in the army? Yeah, if you brutalize people, you can make them pretty cold-hearted. In which case, why don't we just beat children every day? Why don't we just uh, kill their pets in front of them? Like, why don't we just commit all kinds of abuse on children in order to toughen them up? Why would it just be limited to something like uh, a circumcision, right? That's not a particularly uh, good argument uh, because we could achieve that so many other ways that wouldn't involve this kind of stuff, right? Right. But it's, I, you know, and I'm in favor of, you know, improved anesthetics and whatever they can do to make it easier on the baby. But the point is, is that uh, that's not the reason you're, you're not doing it to raise the man's testosterone or whatever. You're doing it so they can be circumcised, so they can have a nice, uh, good sex life with a clean penis and all that. Please their partner, less chance of getting AIDS and everything. And then the, the, these this is really just a, the testosterone thing. That's just a counter to the idea that this is like having some long-term negative psychological effect. It, it's You can't really say that it is having a long-term negative psychological effect. Uh, also, I just wanted to say before I forget that in, when you were talking before, you mentioned that there's like thousands of nerve endings in the penis and that one in 11,000 babies who are circumcised. I, I don't know where you got that one in 11,000 number from. I haven't heard that before, but I know that the – the thousands of nerve endings in the penis, that's like a, a anti-circumcision myth that you can't verify with any study. What do you mean? Okay, I'm, so I've, I've, about, tried, so, to find, hang I've on. tried to find the, the about, source Let me just give you let, – let, sorry to interrupt. Let's just do this one at a time. So about one in a thousand circumcised boys will die from circumcision-related causes. One in 1,000? Yes. So the um, – no, no. No, no. One in 11,000. Even that, I, I okay, don't hang know. On. Where, let where me, let me finish. Yeah, right. You asked for the source. The source is D. Bollinger, B-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. The article is Lost Boys, an Estimate of U.S. Circumcision-Related Infant Deaths. This is from Thymos J. Boyhood Studies, 2010, pages 78 to 90. And again, you can go to circumcisiondebate.org. It is reference number 17. So, because you asked for... The source now. Yeah, no, that's fair. As it, to it whether sounds, or not, it sounds a bit loose. Sorry, that that study, that study sounds a bit loose. It's an it estimate, sounds a bit loose. Right? That's your rebuttal. It sounds well, a bit, it sounds a bit like it has a slightly infused Spanish kind of musk to me. So let's move on <laughs> to that because I don't know what sounds like. It's not really an argument. Hey, if you find that the uh, study is not good, then let me know and we'll we'll put out a correction or an update or whatever. But uh, as far as are you removing? Or disrupting nerve endings when you slice off a third of the penis skin? Well, of course you are. This is that's that's like axiomatic. 
there are, it's one of the most concentrated, the most concentrated set of nerve endings on the male body, and you're slicing it up. So like years ago, I slipped while carrying some plates, and I fell, and I, I have a tiny little scar on my thumb here. Uh, it kind of opened it up pretty hard. I had to go and get some stitches and all that. And it's no big deal. Everything works fine. But right above where the scar is, I mean, originally it was just completely numb because the, the nerves have been cut. But now I can feel a little bit. I guess it's kind of regenerated over, over time or whatever. But that's my thumb, man. <laughs> and that's a cut that was stitched up, not part of the thumb. I didn't remove a third of my thumb skin, right? But the idea that it's not going to diminish sensitivity, you can't say, well, its circumcision is good because it diminishes sensitivity, but it doesn't get rid of any nerve endings. Come on. I mean, this is a contradictory positions, right? Well, no, the sensitivity is in the head of the penis. It's not in the foreskin. I, I think the, the no, way- No, but the foreskin protects the head of the penis. Right. And, and so when the head of the penis is continually less... exposed to underwear and, and all this kind of stuff, it loses sensitivity. Exactly. So all all we're saying here is that you're not cutting into like this super sensitive thousands of nerve endings, like special, like the, the foreskin itself is not this like super erogenous thing that. Okay. So now full, I know you're not circumcised. Endings. Okay. So you don't know because you, you don't know, right? It is. It is. I'm not circumcised. It is. And it's part of the essential pleasure of sexuality to have the foreskin move back and forward. It's easier for the woman because there's less friction. It's more I, pleasurable again, for look, the man I because the tugging saying, is... I get what you're saying. All I'm saying is that we don't know that there's thousands of nerve endings in the foreskin because no study has ever said that. That's that's all I'm saying because I've heard that myth and I think you read it off of that, the debate.org or whatever you were reading from before. And it's just, it's not, uh, you can't substantiate that claim that there's thousands of nerve endings, usually 20,000. So you don't think yeah. that there's nerve endings in the foreskin? I didn't say there's not nerve endings. I said that there's not this super dense 20,000 nerve endings that the uh, intactivists No, like I didn't say 20,000. I said the foreskin is a sensory organ with thousands of nerves and blood vessels as well as muscular tissue. All right. Okay. Sure. I mean, it could be. Well, I'm just curious then what number of nerves would be too many to slice <laughs> off a penis? If it was 999, is it okay to slice? If it's 1,000, is it bad? Like, is there some number of nerves where it becomes good and moral to slice off that much of the penis? The, the point is, is that when you, when you frame it as having thousands of nerve endings, you make it sound like it's this really great erogenous thing. Which it uh, is. Okay, you, you say that now. The, I, I don't even like to bring this up because I don't think it's a good arguing point, but adults who get circumcised by choice, they prefer the sex afterwards more often than not. I don't like that because it's a self-selected sample. They chose to get circumcised in the first place. But so surveys show that. So it's hard to say like, oh, sex is so much better with a foreskin. When the men, grown men go and get circumcised, they say, yeah, it's better without it. Yeah, so, you're right. It is a self-selecting group and most men who get circumcised do so because they have some problem with their foreskin relative to the sexual act. So the fact that the sex improves when the impediment is removed, of course, I understand. But as you point out, it is not an objective group and uh, so we'll have to leave that one to one side. Right, right. But I mean – they're the only people who have had it both ways. And it's, by the way, it's the same with women. Uh, they did this study in Africa and the women, uh, after their adult partners got circumcised, overwhelmingly preferred sex after circumcision. Wait, so well, the women was, whose partners got circumcised 
Yeah. Okay. Do you have any kind of source or a title for that that I can look at that? Because that seems. Uh, yeah, definitely. I actually have it uh, right here. That is. Can you put uh, the link into Skype? Yeah, I can do that. It's the t- study's called Sexual Satisfaction of Women Partners of Circumcised Men in a Randomized Trial of Male Circumcision in Raki, Uganda. While you're getting that, I just wanted to do so. The 20,000 nerve ending data is from, and I quote, H.C. Bazet, B-A-Z-E-T-T et al. And the title is Depth, Distribution, and Probable Identification in the Prepuce of Sensory End Organs Concerned in Sensations of Temperature and Touch. Thermometric Conductivity. This is from the Archives of Neurology and Psychiatry, pages 489 to 517. That's from 1932. So um, I think they could pretty much count nerves in 1932, and it's kind of tragic that it hasn't been updated, but that's where that number is from. And again, you and I can't evaluate these things on the fly or maybe even at all, but just for those, we'll put that link in the show notes, but uh, that's where that data comes from. Anyway, you were going to give me the study uh, in Skype? There we go. Research gate. Dun, 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 dun. All right. Joseph percent. Sorry? Yeah, I was just going to give you the, the basic facts. There's about 40% of the women uh, thought that sex improved about Three percent thought it was worse after circumcision, and the rest uh, were indifferent. The overwhelming majority of women, ninety-seven point one, report either no change or improved sexual satisfaction after their male partner was circumcised. And it's four hundred and fifty-five women, so that's not a lot. It's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good amount. Yeah. Yeah. Body changes. Yeah, so said 39.8% reported an improvement in sexual satisfaction after their partner's circumcision. Don't even know. Don't even know. Again, I can't dismiss it because, you know, I I can't evaluate it one way or another. But uh, (laughs) again, I would say that if you're with a woman who is happier after your penis has been hacked up, That's a pretty cold-hearted woman, right? But I mean, is is it like is, is a guy allowed to like want his woman to get breast implants if she if she doesn't have big breasts? Like, is a guy allowed to? You're allowed to I, want anything. Is it particularly good to say to a woman, "I want you to go to get uh, like beach volleyballs inserted under your tit skin well, because I like big beach, boobs that don't bounce"? I mean, yeah, I guess you can ask <laughs> anything you want, but it's cold-hearted. It's cold-hearted to say to your woman, you're not sexy enough for me unless you have breast implants. That is cold. That's mechanical. That's physical. You know, uh, if, you want, if you want your sexual partner to enjoy sex with you more, get better at sex. <laughs> you know, read up a little. Read some Kama Sutra. Figure out some X, Ys, and Zs. You know, you can find ways to get better at sex. Be better at communicating about sex. Ask what she likes. Tell her what you like. Figure out what works for you. There's lots of ways I, to get better at sex that don't involve a little hacksaw. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like like I said, uh, I don't think that this is like a crucial thing that I would – and I wouldn't recommend for men to get circumcised because I don't – I think that the risks and the – 
the recovery time for adults and everything, it doesn't make it worth it unless you have a medical reason. But I just think that like for babies, it's, you know, it's a little snip. It's they, they heal in a couple days and then they're good to go and they have these benefits. It just seems like a reasonable thing. And the, the last thing I, I'm, I'm pretty much got all my points out here. The last thing I want to say about it is that a part of my problem with this conversation is that the, the way it, people who do choose to circumcise their sons get characterized as benevolent. You, you use the term disposable males, like, oh, we're, we're doing this because you're disposable, because we don't care about you. I see it as something you would do because you view it in their best interests. So then they should I, make that. They should make that decision for themselves as adults. You can't say, I'm going to make this decision for you because it is irreversible. And one in 11,000 are going to die. I've had a call with a guy some months ago whose penis was destroyed by a botched circumcision. Completely, his life was destroyed. His life was destroyed. And if this means to avoid that kind of risk, to avoid that exertion and assertion of power, to say to a man, we must hack away at your genitals so that women might like them a little better to look at? Excuse me, a male penis is not a piece of art. Yeah, but they, if they like it better, they're more likely to put it in their mouth, Stefan. No, you find, a a woman, you find a woman oh, who has empathy and doesn't want to see a penis <laughs> that's been mutilated. You you sound like an idealist, you know. Oh, you don't have to that's do this. That's not an argument. To, it's an it's an edge. I'm saying you're oh, going to have an this. edge Hang as a second here. I'm sorry to interrupt because <laughs> that you know we're not having an argument. You're just making names, right? So here's here's something interesting regarding that circumcision. Now I'm always a little bit concerned when women's opinions in Uganda are asked because I'm not sure that they have a huge amount of independence, right? So here's mm. something that's interesting. Ah, let's see here. In each of the above examples, the outcome may have been assisted by the Jewish and Muslim communities who vigorously and publicly opposed attempted bans on circumcision, arguing that anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic bias was responsible. Sorry, what are we talking about right uh, now? The study about Uganda and sexual satisfaction increased, right, well, after circumcision. So you're, you're saying that Jews and Muslims hacked the study is that no no what i'm saying is that <laughs> i don't know if you have let's say a muslim husband in uganda and you don't oh. have a lot of say independence or female rights or choices and you live in a society where wife beating is pretty common i'm just wondering if she's entirely free it's not a rebuttal i'm just saying it's uh what? My understanding is that the reason they're getting circumcised as males is because circumcision wasn't really common in that culture. Uh, but they've, it's a, this initiative that the, like, pe the West has been pushing to fight the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, yeah I get it. No, I get it. So, but they don't want, um, so I'm just, I'm just, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that Islam is, is a huge uh, factor in, in the results of that study. I, I'm, you'd, you'd have to make a little bit more of a I'm connection. Just, I'm just reading a comment. I'm just, I'm just putting out a comment that says, <laughs> the outcome may have been assisted by the Jewish and Muslim communities vigorously and publicly opposed attempted bans, I assume, on circumcision, saying that it's anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic. So i just pointing it out. It may, it's not absolutely an argument. I'm just saying that it is, right. it is a possibility. Now – you don't have the right to remove healthy tissue from babies. You don't have the right. 
You don't have the right to remove healthy tissue from female babies or male babies. You don't have the right to remove breasts or teeth or labias or you name it. You don't have the right to remove a circumcision. You don't have the right to remove toes because you might stub your toe or get toe cancer. You just don't have the right for preventative medicine to destroy healthy skin and healthy nerve endings because of the possibility of something in the future. And excuse me, I don't want to have anything to do with a woman who would rather that I be hacked. Like, I'm sorry. If that's the if that's the price, it's like, no, I don't want a woman like that. I'm sorry. Like, I don't want a woman Again, who says, well, my aesthetic like- preference is much more important than your bodily integrity. It's like, to hell with you, woman. Go no, find 90, some guy who's been hacked and say, well, that's prettier to it- me because you got the heart of an ice age. You know, there there are a few women out there for whom it's a deal breaker, but for for most, right? But I'm saying Good. for Save most time. women, for most women, it's probably a preference, and that's that's ninety percent of women. So again, yeah, this yeah, is why I say yeah. you sound I mean, like an I'll, idealist because you're you're saying you're, you're, you're asking me to go against my entire life experience with the data I haven't even seen the source of, so it's not going to work. Well, that, that there's a that's a study from 1978 where they they just uh, an American study where the women 90 plus percent said that they preferred circumcised. So you're saying that you that you should just all right, reduce. All right, let's have a look. What's the source? Oh, I, I don't have that. I thought that was like kind of common knowledge. All right, hang on. 90 percent uh, of women prefer. All right, let's see. Let's see if we can find it because, you know, this seems to be, it seemed to be, I hate to say hung up or <laughs> well hung on this or whatever, right? But ah, let's see here. Yes, Iowa City, uh, Paul Williams, MD, Marvel Williams, uh, women's preference in penile circumcision and sexual partners is the name of the study. Uh, what's the name of the study here? I- I'm linking it on Skype right oh, okay. now. Thanks. There you go. It's so it's 71 to 83% in this, but, uh, or what does it say? 89% of the sample ha- had their son circumcised. Let's see here. Regardless of maternal choice. More attractive, okay, of 145 new mothers of sons responding to this survey. So this is not a blind survey. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Okay, so this is mothers who are responding. In other words, we assume it's mothers who've had their children or their sons circumcised, right? Yeah, 89% of the sample had their sons circumcised. So yeah, well, I mean, it's it's America in the seventies, so it was very. No, it, was it still says twenty fifteen. Right? Uh, no, it was oh, published, published online twenty fifteen. Yeah, it's I don't the date should be on here somewhere, but I, I remember it being like seventy seven or you know eighty eight. There, it's up at the top, volume fourteen, nineteen eighty eight, Journal of. So so eighty eight. So, so thirty still, years ago. Still more common. So thirty years ago. Hmm. And this is not about women. This is about moms, right? And this is moms who have voluntarily chosen to respond to the survey. The vast majority, almost nine out of 10, had had their sons circumcised. So this is in no way, shape, or form an objective study. This is a self-delected group of women who overwhelmingly had their children circumcised. Come on. Yes. This is not 90% true. of women, dude. 
This is 90% of women who are responding to, do you like circumcision, who had their boys circumcised 30 years ago. You, you don't think you're stretching the shit out of this one? Uh, I mean, it seems like most women prefer it. No, 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 no. Come on, man. Don't give me that bullshit. I'm pushing back against the data you cited with great confidence without giving me any sense of the limitations. You don't think uh, 30 years ago, a self-selected group of women, almost all of whom had their boys circumcised, are talking about circumcision. You, you think that's some general survey here? I mean, I, no, I suppose not, but I don't have a better, I don't have a I general know. survey. This is, this is what I got. I this know. is what I got, you know what I'm saying? But here's the fact, is that you kind of snowed me on this one, right? Did you know the limitation? Uh, did you know the limitations of this, or did you just skim it and say, "Oh, it's all right"? First yeah, of all, I you do. said ninety percent, and it's actually seventy-one to eighty-three percent. So you bullshitted me on that. You said ninety percent, okay, and it's actually yeah, but, 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 seventy-one but, but, to eighty-three percent. You didn't tell me it was decades old, and you didn't tell me it was women who self-selected, and that most of those women had their, their boys circumcised. Of course, women who get their boys circumcised prefer a circumcised penis for whatever weird reason, or maybe it's whatever. Right? Of course, of course. It's like yeah, saying, well, you had your children circumcised. Do you approve of circumcision? Wow, 100% of the people I asked approve of circumcision. I mean, that's not a, that's not a study. Well, they, they say why they preferred and stuff like that. And the reason I said 90% was because I believe that's what it was for oral sex in the actual. I've seen the – it won't open here. You have to have access, but I've seen it, uh, I've read it somewhere else and it was, they showed like the answers to each question and for oral sex, it was like 90%. That's, that's the big one. Again, that's when you, when you're circumcising your son, what you're doing is you're promising them a future of better blowjobs. Okay. Hang on. And, Even and among more. women having sexual experience only with uncircumcised partners, half preferred to uncircumcised penises for sexual partners. Yes, yeah, so preferred if, uncircumcised penises for sexual partners. Yeah. Well, that wasn't the data you gave me. Half. You said 90% yeah, the, prefer the, the, circumcised. First of all, the study says 71 right, so to 83%, are, and you never mentioned that, that half no of these women preferred uncircumcised penises for sexual partners. It's not, it's not, it's, that's among the women with, only experience with them. So they've never tried circumcised. I know. And they still, right? I'm and just so half saying, of, half preferred well, uncircumcised penises, which means that half of them don't want a circumcised penis. Half. They, no, yeah, but they've never tried it. They've I don't care. I've never tried being hit by a train. That doesn't mean I'm 50% likely to do it. Stefan, 71% to 83% preferred circumcised penises for each sexual activity listed. It's not half. It's 71 Read to further down. I, I, Even no, among I, women having sexual experience with, only, with uncircumcised partners, only half preferred uncircumcised penises for sexual partners. Right. The ones who haven't experienced the circumcised. But the total of 145 women surveyed was 71 to 83%. And you understand... When you say 90% of women and it turns out to be 71 to 83% of 145 of self-selected women who had their kids circumcised, that's a bullshit correlation to make. And it's highly irresponsible for you to spread that information. Highly irresponsible. Because you're getting kids' penises hacked up by spreading bullshit numbers like this, man. This is highly irresponsible. You need to give the full context of the study. You need to talk about its limitations. And you need to talk about the data that runs counter 
to the shit you want to believe. Don't go around spreading this kind of stuff because people are going to listen to you. You're credible, you're vocal, you're verbal, you're dexterous verbally and so on. People are going to listen to you and they're going to cut up their baby's penises. I you don't even have that, the data I right. believe that it's in their best interest to do that. But you are bullshitting with the data. No, not really. It yes, is 90% you are. You told me 90%. The, I, the 90% number sticks in my head because I care a lot about blowjobs. I, I, I linked you the study as soon as you asked for it. I'm not trying to hide anything here. Okay. Were you right about 90%? It, it was fudged a little bit because uh, if you look at the general answer, it's whatever it is, 70 to 83 or whatever it was. 71 but, to uh, 83. Yeah. But 50% prefer uncircumcised penises for so, sexual partners. So, I mean, if you're reducing the, the pool of women who are going to prefer your penis down to like 17% instead of 10%, or if we're going to be charitable, like 29%, is that still like a good, a, is that still something worth doing for the sake of some kind of principle that, is, that isn't really like some, you know, oh, bodily integrity or whatever, but, but the, you know, when you're talking about hacking off healthy uh um, tissue, you wouldn't say the same thing for a kid that had like webbed fingers or, or webbed toes or, uh, you know, a cleft lip or whatever that we have to respect their bodily autonomy and we can't perform, uh, no, but come on, that's surgery a deviation. on these kids. The foreskin is the norm. You, you, you can't, you're desperate to prop up this bullshit narrative you have, man. And I'm sorry to be so harsh, but we are talking about the bodily integrity of babies. You're so, comparing so a normal, natri norm, natural, healthy okay? foreskin to a cleft palate? Are you kidding me? I, I'm making a point about bodily autonomy. And, and, and you can't really use deviation as an argument because then you would have to be in favor of circumcision if circumcision was the norm. No, right? the, the, the deviation is hacking off part of the body, right? Right, but I, I, I'm saying – The if, norm is to be born with a foreskin. That's what right. has evolved. That's to protect the head of the penis. That's to provide yeah, additional saying, pleasure during intercourse for both the man and the woman. The reason we fix the cleft lip is because they won't look like everyone else, right? So that's why it's a deviation. If everybody was circumcised, you would have to circumcise them. So I just don't like that. I argument. don't know who the hell – I mean, you hear all these stories. Well, you're going to look different in the locker room. No guy is going to look at another guy's penis in the locker room. <laughs> well, very few. And if they do, they're going to keep it to themselves. <laughs> never had a true. problem. Like, never I had agree. a comment. Never had a complaint. Never had a hesitation. It's all made up nonsense. Yeah, I mean, you, you're you in Canada too and it's or it's less common. So I don't think it – but no, I agree. I agree. I'm not saying that's that you should do it so that they look the same in the locker room. I, I agree that that's a silly argument. I'm just I was just making a point about deviation and all that. That if you tr if you were going to use that as an argument, it seems like you would have to be in favor of it if it was the norm. No, because but there's, there are specific arguing. issues that arise out of something like a cleft palate, right? Yeah. There so can you be can you have you have trouble eating yeah. as a baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? You can't yeah, suck yeah. properly. The roof of the mouth is not fully formed. You get ear infections. You get hearing loss. You can get speech yeah, no, and language I, I delay know, know, because the opening of the about, hang on, hang on, hang on. You you brought up this shit. Let me respond. Right. So speech and language delay, the opening of the roof of the mouth and the lip muscle function may be decreased, can lead to a delay in speech or abnormal speech. 
As a result of these abnormalities, teeth may not develop normally. Orthodontic treatment may be required. So, yeah, the baby can half starve to death, get ear infections, hearing loss, speech and language delay, and massive dental problems. That's not but the same as having I'm, a foreskin, saying, dude. I'm saying if you had a minor cleft lip that was just a cosmetic issue, you would still fix it as a cosmetic. Also, if they fixed Kevin Costner's webbed feet, he wouldn't have beat the smokers in Waterworld. So just because – All right. Well, I, th- I think on that note, we'll move on. But I appreciate the debate. I'm just telling people that you need to design your parenting for what things are going to look like in 20 years because 20 years, you're – Kids are going to look at you and your sons are going to look at you and this circumcision stuff is horrible. It is a mutilation. It is a violation of bodily integrity. It goes against the Hippocratic Oath and it is terrible all around. And your kids are going to look at you as more data comes in, as more facts come in, as more of this nonsense like it prevents STDs and all of that and women prefer it and all of these lies, they're going to diminish. They're going to fall away. But the circumcision is forever. Cannot be reversed. Cannot be stopped. History will vindicate me. Yeah, we'll see. I absolutely guarantee you you'll be wrong about that. But once more, I do appreciate the debate and the chance to talk about these issues. Thank you, Lyndon. We'll move on All to right, the next All right, thank caller. you, Stefan. Have a good night. Right up next, we have Zed. Zed wrote in and wanted to do something of a mock debate, taking the position of, do Asian Americans owe their economic prosperity to African American civil rights struggles in the 1960s? Can the debt to the latter be repaid by giving them more college admission spots at the expense of the former? That's from Zed. Hello, Zed. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, wishing you love and peace, Stefan. Um, Thank you. I'm, was, uh, I'm sorry that you had to be in the last of the alphabetical lineups as a child. That is, uh, <laughs> that is tough. Well, you know, it's a, it's a pseudonym because, you know, where I live, it's, it's dangerous to be um, on the right. So, oh boy, you know, I just okay. have to have so protect myself. Yeah, you, you live on the uh, planet. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I know initially, I initially proposed this as a mock debate, but I, I thought about taking the other position, and I, I kind of had this uh, desire to sort of vomit. So <laughs> instead, I just kind of wanted to play it straight and kind of, um, arti- you know, bring up some of the arguments that I've run into, kind of debating uh, leftist friends on this topic. Um, if that's okay. Yeah, whatever you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, let's see. I think, you know, so a little backdrop to, to why I'm asking this question, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm East Asian, ethnically. And um, so you're what? Oh, you're East Asian. East Asian. Yes, yes, uh, f- yes. Uh, from and, where? And um, sorry? Uh, where from where? Oh, oh East Asian um, Chinese heritage. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, the common question that comes up, among friends, you know, well, if there is systemic racism, why are East Asian and, and, and Jews, on average, you know, more prosperous than whites, right? Well, and um, also and, um, indigenous or Native Americans are also wealthier than whites on average. Huh. Huh. I did Casino, not know that. <laughs> ka-ching. Well, and treaties right. and welfare and you name it. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, and and I'd say that the, the East Asian um, communities is – Fairly, it's, it's, there's, there's a left leaning contingent. There's also a right leaning contingent as well. And I, I'm, I'm more on the right. Um, the people I debate with are more on the left. And the East Asians on the left, they'll complain about, you know, racism from whites or, you know, there's this bamboo ceiling that we're facing in our careers and we have to, you know, somehow, you know, uh, address them. Hang Whereas, on, hang on, Zed. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm getting a clicking 
Oh, and if there's, yes, you right. know, one thing I will not accept from an East Asian, it's problems with technology. Like I can't have, I can't, I've got to go with the cliche. I can't have that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, Just let me if see you if can, can hold the mic, mic still here. or something, that'd be great. Sure, sure, sure. Um, can you hear me now here? Yeah, it's great. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So the, um, the East Asians on the left, they all complain about racism from whites or, um, you know, the bamboo ceiling that they're facing in their careers. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, for folks like uh, me on the right, I was like, well, OK, yeah, you may encounter some racism in your life, but you have to watch out for the really pernicious racism that can affect your career, like, you know, getting into universities and those kinds of situations. Oh, you mean like yeah. the affirmative action for blacks that diminishes East Asian opportunities in higher education? Right, right. Yeah. yeah like like what's happening, um, you know, with Harvard and the situation involving that lawsuit where the what is it? The personality traits of Asians were marked lower by the back office admissions people. Um, even when the people who actually did the interviews were giving Asians reasonable marks, you know, high marks on those, those subjective traits. Yeah. 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 Of, so of course, of course, admissions should be neutralized by race and by gender. Of course it should, you should be given a number and admissions should be neutralized by race and by gender. But of course, people don't want to do that because that would reveal the IQ differences and you name it, right? And it would be tougher. So, of course, everybody wants to start fudging stuff because, again, they consider all group differences to be the result of bigotry. Yeah. And, and this, this sort of, um, you know, this desire by the left to kind of, um, play with the numbers here, uh, that, that kind of shows up also recently where I think Mayor de Blasio of New York City wanted to get rid of or diminish the role of the admissions test for the elite public schools. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Like, and, I mean, because what is that? Because if they only rely on that, that is essentially, that's, that is a IQ test in the end, right? Well, they should just do an IQ test. Forget everything else. They should yeah. just do an IQ test and then bypass university and go work for someone because it's all, you know, the IQ is all that really matters. The G, G, IQ and personality, intelligence and personality as a whole is, is what matters. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so there's, so that's, that's sort of, you know, East Asians are right. They, they're, they're wary of that. Um, and also, and all these, and, and the term Baizua, I don't know if you've heard of that. Now, this is not coined by Chinese Americans. What's the word? It's actually, uh, Baizua. It's, it's Chinese for white left. It's the, um, it literally, it, well, it literally means white left. And it's the term used to describe social justice warriors hmm. or progressives. Yeah. Hmm. And this is this point, this term was coined by the the Chinese internet because actually in in mainland China you you're, there's actually a lot of uh Chinese netizens who are really kind of pro Trump and they appreciate his like lack of political correctness and they'll mock um you know the Baizuo in the United States for you know holding such ridiculous positions or freaking out about what's going on in the country. So Right, right. Yeah. And, and in what know, way it, do they view whites? Uh, and again, I know we're talking in generalities. It's not all sure, East sure. Asians, of course. But those who do, what do they say is the issue with whites? Why do they perceive whites would be racist and how does it manifest? Um, are we talking about the um, the the ones on the left who perceive that they're on the, the receiving end of white racism and things like that? Well, whoever, maybe it's on the left, maybe it's on the right, but what are the general, because I don't hear a lot about that. We may have over the past while heard a little bit from the black community about the issues they have with whites, but I've not heard much from the East Asian community. So what are the major issues 
that they feel prove the hypothesis of anti-East Asian white racism? I uh, Okay, so uh, I can think of a couple of examples that I've read, which I don't um, – which I don't particularly agree with. This, this is these are examples coming oh, from. No, no, the I'm West. not saying what you agree and, with. I'm just like yeah, yeah, yeah. just what channel I, the yeah, resentment sure, or sure. whatever. Yeah, sure. So um, I recall, and I, I, the name escapes me right now, but it was written by a couple of um, professors from a Southern California University. I forget which one, uh, and they were talking about um, how there is a bamboo ceiling because you know even though uh, Asians on average get higher grades. But when it gets to careers, they can't get beyond a certain, like, man, they tend not to get beyond a certain management level, right? And yeah, like um, head of research, not CXO, right? Right, right, yeah. right, right. And um, and then there's uh, occasionally are anecdotes of people, uh, like there was one time, I, I read a New York Times article, it was by a, um, a, a Chinese-American author who was describing an experience prior to the 2016 election where... Um, a well-dressed uh, white woman was saying, like, uh, go back to your country. You know, and this is in New York City. And it's like, well, you know, it's and, and so that's that's the end. That's the kind of. Oh, oh. And actually, I can think of examples where like my friends, they'll be at a concert. Uh, an older guy kind of like kicks, um, you know, his wife in the back of the chair. And then they'll say, ah, yeah, well. It was because he was racist, and I, I just tell my friend, I'm like, well, maybe he's just an asshole. It's an old, this guy is an asshole, and it's, it's probably just, um, you know, we're quick to assign racial motives to these kinds of things, and it's Wait, maybe it's just they got one third hand account of somebody who might have said something on the street and a guy who kicked a chair. Uh, Come yeah. on, you yeah. got to give me better racism than that. You know, whites are pretty good at stuff. You know, if we we're all so racist, you think we'd be better at it? Like we'd be more, you'd you'd see it more, right? I mean, whites yeah, don't I mean, build I, cities and hide them behind I mean, mirages, right? So, <laughs> so where? Come on, give me more. Like, what, what are they going to say about this racism? Oh God, um, you know, it's it, and it's it's mostly that. You know, it's mostly these personal anecdotes of you know just a interaction gone awry, and they're um, you know, it, or being called. You know, being told to go back to your country like that it's that kind of thing but i'm like well have you ever that, experienced that anything of, like that i've experienced uh i've experienced that from black people actually oh yeah sorry said you're not allowed to say that because it disturbs the narrative we're just gonna have oh, to erase yeah. that from the internet because that goes against the narrative well anyway, yeah you know I, I, yeah well i went to you know public schools uh as a youngster, and uh, these are schools that were majority black, and so you know, growing up, there were I would get bullied in school, right? It's like, oh, you're carrying too many books, and then my books would get knocked on the floor, and uh, like they the do you mean the, by the black, the black kid, kids or just by, by other the black kids? kids. Yeah, Boy, by black and kids. I, I hate to point out the very deep meaning behind all of that. You're carrying too many books. I'm going to <laughs> knock them on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh yeah yeah no it's it was hey that. Hey, then, hey hey this is library <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um the, and and i i mean i i remember um you know just being called out it's like oh chinese chinese it's like yeah why are you calling out the fact that i'm chinese it's like why is that so notable but you right, were well, born I'm, in america I, right i was yes so that's interesting is chinese an ethnicity or the country you're born in 
Um, I mean, I guess in my, well, that's why I'm pretty, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'll say, you know, I'm ethnically Chinese, you know, nationality wise, I'm American. You're American, right? Yeah, of course. And it's interesting, you know, it's always the question that gets asked, you know, if, if, if I go as a white guy with a white wife to Japan and have a child in Japan, is my child Japanese? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. See, when you have a monoculture, like a lot of East Asian countries, right? You look at China, you look at uh, South Korea, North Korea too, I guess. You look at uh, uh, Japan and so on. It's mono-ethnic, right? It's ethnically mm-hmm. homogenous. So then the question is, are you that nationality if you're born there? It's kind of confusing, right? Like you can say American. Mm-hmm. You're born in America. You're American. If I'm born in China as a blonde, blue-eyed white guy, am I Chinese? It kind of short-circuits people a lot, right? Whereas it's not the same in the West. This is why people get mad and they say, well, you got Africa for Asia or you got Africa for Africans, you got, you know, Asia for Asians, but white countries for everyone, <laughs> you know, they don't know. <laughs> right, it's not right, really right. a two-way thing, right? No, no, it isn't. And, um, you know, I think through listening to your podcasts, like I've I've become – more sympathetic to the plight that white people are experiencing these days. You know, I used to be more of the like, oh, those white people, you know, kind of this is this is back like, you know, a few years ago when Wait, I was all those like, white people of what? I, you can tell me. Oh, I mean, those, I, I'm not gonna all, get offended. Racist, I'm just white people and stuff like that. But you know, that's that's when I was on the left. You know, I was really oh, yeah. buying into that that I those identity politics and that um, you know, that the victimhood narrative and all, all that stuff. Um but you know I, you know, after I got red pilled, it's like, it's, oh my God, you know, it's, it's so much clearer that, um, like, look, you know, the America is a unique place founded on, um, you know, old, old Western traditions, uh, more free than most societies. Like, you know, we're, you know, and it was you know, British I'm, and I'm Dutch a, people overwhelmingly. Yeah. Uh, white yeah. British and Dutch people overwhelmingly that formed the backbone of American migration, certainly up until the mid 19th century, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, you know, they created a society that was, it's pretty nice to live in, right? Like, you know, it's better than, uh, it's better than my immediate ancestors oh, know, getting killed in communist Come China. On. It's, yeah, it's the yeah. best. And we, we, we simply know that from the footprints. Like, which way are the yeah. footprints going? Yeah. Now, yeah some yeah, of yeah, it's yeah. the no, best because of freedom point. and some of it's the best because of lack of freedom for like people who can come squat on welfare and so on. But anyway, go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, this, brings me back to uh, what were we just talking about um yeah yeah so the experience the racism i experienced um was of well was from other ethnicities right i personally didn't experience much you know uh racism from white people i mean there might you might get questions like oh are you chinese or japanese or what you know but well, that's curiosity not, that's not racism yeah you know and, you know? and i think yeah yeah and I know, to, and people people who ask me where i'm born i mean I have an accent, you know? Well, you have a particular physiology on your face, you know? I mean, people are going to be curious. doesn't mean that they think any less of you. It's interest, you know? Hey, Steph, where's your yes. accent from? Hey, Zed, where, you know, where's your ethnicity from? You know, this is a conversation, exactly. you know? Yeah, and I think that's, it's, that's the healthy way to view it. But unfortunately, I think you have some on the left who um, view asking about the origins as a, as a way to suggest that you don't belong or you're so foreign that um, – 
you know, I have to know about how foreign you are. Or no, come on. The, the blacks say, don't call us black, call us African-American because it's really important where we're from and you got to respect that. And it's like, wait, what are you asking me where I'm from for? That's racist. It's like, oh, man, you really can't win sometimes. Really? You know, I, I, I learned that. I, I kind of learned the opposite, that, that black people prefer to be called black. I mean, that's, well, maybe I, I heard it from, <laughs> from somewhere else, but, um, but it's just more straightforward. I mean, you're not going to say to Nigerian that immigrates to America, it's like, oh, you're African-American. It's like, no, I'm African. <laughs> right? Oh, right, right, so, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like that, that, um, th- that kind of zooming back kind of at 10,000 feet, you know, among East Asians, you know, there, there are those on the left, there's those on the right. And, um, the question of, you know, um, and, and really this is really getting to the question of college admissions, mm. um, a, as well. And, you know, the, the, the fundamental question, and this goes back to the original question, you know, do, do Asian Americans owe their economic prosperity to the African Americans struggle in the civil rights movement? Nope. And can that debt be, <laughs> and can the debt to the latter be repaid by giving them more college admissions spots? And we can break that down a little further. But first, I wanted to pose a riddle to you that has been posed to me hmm. by some of my ref, uh, leftist friends. Well, it's a hypothetical scenario. Okay. Let's say you've got, um, you have to fill one last admission spot for your university and you've got two candidates with the same measurables you know same test scores and grades um same types of ex- extracurricular activities but one is white but the people to fill it where one is a white man the other is an underrepresented minority so who do you admit the choices are a the white man or b the underrepresented minority so what would your answer be to that well i call bullshit on the whole question First of all, <laughs> it's it's saying that everyone's exactly the same. Like they're completely identical, which is impossible. It's impossible for two people to be – even identical twins are different, right? So it's impossible for two people to be completely identical. But even if we say that they're completely identical, you do it in a racially blind way, which is you flip a coin. Or – if you really want to punish the black person, you put the black person in college. And if you really want to punish the Asian person, you put the Asian person in college so that they can get a lot of useless indoctrination and end up massively in debt for economically useless degrees. Worse than economically useless, economic, economically negative degrees. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I don't think that, uh, that the question is even valid. It's one of these uh, – ridiculous you're hanging from a flagpole you kick in the window oh so you don't respect property rights and it's like this you know you're the last person on a lifeboat and there's only one squid between you and the cat (laughs) you know like this i mean these situations that never uh, occur people aren't worth it and of course the best thing to do is to anonymize by ethnicity and gender all applications so that you can't tell i i totally agree with your take on that and the thing is like when i got that question like i was First, I was offended because I was being presented with a false choice. And the, um, the, I thought, well, you know, why not admit both? Right. Because if you're, if you're in a real life, you know, university, you've got a little flexibility. No, but at some point you, you can't admit everyone. Right. True. True. So given that constraint, you know, flip a coin was definitely, uh, one answer I proposed. They were not happy with that. And then my answer after that was, don't admit either of them because they are the last, this is the last ranking spot in the class that you're trying to fill. 
they're not as good as the others. You'll be fine without that last spot. So that's that was my um, that was my final answer <laughs> right. to that question. Right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing too. I mean, this is what people try and do is they try and reduce things down to these I hate to say black and white momentary situations as if there's yeah. no continuity in human mm-hmm. life. So let's say, as has been the case with affirmative action for blacks. Whoa, you're kind of breathing into my ear there. If you can just breathe out, sorry. make sure you're not oh, yeah, yeah. giving yeah, me sorry. that rumble on the mic. But we know from affirmative action that blacks have been promoted into colleges where they can't succeed. And as you know, 40% of people who start college end up in debt, lives ruined, bombing out, never get their degree. I mean, it's a real disaster. And because blacks of less ability have been put into college, they're diluting the value of degrees for blacks as a whole, which means that even the vastly talented and brilliant blacks are lost in the shuffle of people who were there because of affirmative action. That means that smarter blacks recognize this as a problem and are tending to stay away from university because it's not worth it as much to them because they get mixed in with. The employer who sees the black coming from a particular university and he sees an East Asian coming from that particular university, what's he going to do? Well, if it was objective, he'd say, well, they're both equally smart. They both got the same marks. But because of affirmative action, he's going to look at that black and he's going to look at the East Asian and he's going to say, well, I don't know. I know that the East Asian is probably better than average because he's been marked, you know, that the marks went down to uh, were artificially lowered. So he's super smart. The black could have been, he could be really talented, could be smarter than the East Asian. But if I had to bet money, the black could be there because of affirmative action. So who's he going to hire? See, this affirmative action is just this snapshot, like there's no continuity in life, like people don't make decisions based on trends. Employers are going to look at that and to be responsible to their investment, to their company, to their shareholders, to their employees, to their customers, they have to choose the best person. Putting underqualified people into a degree, especially if they're ident- if it was all redheads, you know, well, we've got to have this many redheads in a degree. And then you end up taking redheads who are less able And you kind of push them through and you mark them differently and you mark them up and then you push them out into the workforce. Well, now the talented redheads can't be distinguished from the less talented redheads. So redheads as a whole don't get hired. It's terrible for blacks, affirmative action. It's terrible. Well, I guess it's it's super great for the East Asians who get through because, you know, they've gone through so many hurdles. It's it's quite something, right? So it's, you know, if you have to hire someone to climb – Haul a whole bunch of stuff up a cliff, and you see one guy who went up the cliff in a balloon, and another guy who went up with a twenty-pound weight on each arm. You know who's the stronger person, right? So it is terrible. So who should we admit? It's like, how about we just keep it neutral, and that gives the greatest benefit to the talented blacks, and the greatest benefit to the talented and brilliant Hispanics, and that makes getting that degree more valuable for everyone. But right now, with all the social engineering, we're stripping the value of the degree away from the brilliant blacks, the brilliant Hispanics. And it is very, very unfair because employers have to look at the facts. They, I mean, I guess there's some political correctness, there's some rewards for diversity hires and so on, but particularly small business, which generate a lot of jobs and usually aren't subject to those constraints, you have to judge based on ability. You don't have any room for error. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, another another talking point that I got, or another example that's kind of foisted uh, upon me in these debates is where uh, they'll say, "Well, you've got this, you know, University of New Hampshire. It's a super white university. Uh, 
you know, we got to make it more diverse. And really that's code for got to make it less white. Um, but then I have to tell them like, well, okay, New Hampshire. Okay. So the, the university of New Hampshire has something like a, a student population of 80 to 90, 80 to 90% white. All right. Can you guess what the population of New Hampshire is? 80 to 90%. 90, 93.9. <laughs> right. So, so whites are underrepresented. Yeah. According to demographics. Sure. So it's like, it's, it's, you're not even, they're not, like, sometimes they're not even looking at the context where it's like, yeah, well, it's serving the state. The state is mostly this way. You, wouldn't you expect it to be, um, <laughs> reflecting? No, you know, sorry to interrupt. No, I'm sorry. I wouldn't expect it to be representative because I understand normalized by IQ. So given mm -hmm. that East Asians yeah. have a higher IQ than whites on average, I would expect there to be a higher proportion of East Asians, particularly in the fields where spatial reasoning, which is kind of your guys' specialty corner, so to speak, right? This where the spatial like engineering, maybe some physics and so on, where the spatial reasoning stuff is really important. I would expect there to be fewer whites as a whole and more East Asians because I know what normalized by IQ means. Right. Right. Um yeah, so all that, um, and I'm sorry for taking you on this detour um, from from the main, <laughs> from the original main question. You're very polite, um, but but the I, I guess then um, you know going back to the main question where you know the the Asian American economic prosperity, you know, is it due to African African American struggle in the civil rights um, movement? And I think that that first part of the question. Uh, kind of alludes to the freeloader problem that people on the left seem to be so uh, concerned about, which is that, um, well, you see, oh, you know, we struggled, you, you benefited. It's not fair. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wanted to see if there's a crisp way to um, address that. Well, that if argument. the civil rights movement produces wealth, why aren't African Americans wealthy? Um. The, the answer I would get would be, well, because systemic racism. Well, no, because systemic racism would be whites racist against all non-whites. So if a civil rights struggle produces the opportunity for great wealth or produces great wealth, why are only Asian Americans cashing in and not African Americans? Ah, uh, but you see, this is the leftists would say, ah, uh, but they, the Asians didn't have a legacy of you know, hundreds of years of slavery in America. So the idea is that people who've s suffered from historical injustice can't overcome it. Uh, did that, Asian Americans yes. ever suffer any systemic injustice in America? Pretty sure they did. I don't <laughs> think a lot of those railways built themselves, and I don't think the internment camps were a particularly great thing for anyone involved. And if you look at historical injustice, you can look at the regular pogroms and beatings and expulsions and thefts and expropriations and in imprisonment of Jews throughout Europe for the last couple thousand years off and on. You know, the, 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 the killers of Jesus, you know, like the crazy conspiracy theories and Jews went through the Holocaust, for God's sake, you know, along with other homosexuals and intellectuals and, you know, freedom thinkers. The Jews went through the Holocaust, fled to America with nothing after more than a thousand years of persecution, right? Close to 2,000 years of persecution on and off. Came to America with nothing. 
took them four years to achieve income parity with whites. Four years. So if the argument is that historical injustice renders an entire group of people eternally crippled economically, we have to ask why it does not apply to other groups that have also been enslaved and also been genocided and also been subjugated and also been run off and murdered and right why why is it only this one particular group that cannot even with the approval and and affirmation and consent of the majority of people even who can have a black guy to be to be president why can they not do it it's not the legacy of slavery there were a lot of people who were slaves or close to slaves who weren't black who have done relatively okay. If you look at the Dark Ages, the British people or a lot of the Western European people were, you know, slavish, right? I mean, they were serfs. They were bought and sold with the land. They had no particular freedom. They, Their occupations were determined for them ahead of the time. They could be beaten or imprisoned virtually at will. And so you had, for longer than a couple of hundred years, the grinding subjugation of the average European peasant for a thousand years after the fall of Rome in many places. And then, look at that, they got freedom and tickety-boo. You know, you get the agricultural revolution, you get the enlightenment, you get the industrial revolution, and boom! You know, there's an overcoming of these things. Uh, the, the Japanese people themselves bombed, as I mentioned earlier, from end to end. China had horrible communism inflicted on them through the State Department, through the communists in the State Department, through the funding of Chairman Mao or the soon-to-be Chairman Mao over Chiang Kai-shek because they called him an agrarian reformer rather than a bloodthirsty totalitarian communist who was going to kill and starve and murder tens of millions of Chinese who never asked for communism in any way, shape, or form. I like to call the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution just like very uh – grievous self-inflicted wounds that the Chinese inflicted on themselves. Yeah, well, but communism is inflicted upon the Chinese people against their will by the American State Department under direction of the communists working in there, as was pointed out repeatedly by McCarthy, which is why McCarthy must be forever vilified. And so if you look at that, it's hard to say that the only possible reason that blacks are doing badly is because of the legacy of slavery, because there are many, many groups in history who were subjugated and conquered. I mean, the the Greeks were conquered by the, the, the Turkish Muslims for 400 years, subjugated, ground down, taxed into oblivion, very few freedoms, beaten, thrown in jail, not even third-class citizens, 400 years, roughly equivalent to the length of, of slavery. And the other thing we can do, of course, is we can compare American blacks to other blacks around the world. And wouldn't you know it, we find that American blacks are by far the richest blacks in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of um, transitions me to the, the second part, which is that, um, you know, could that, well, I think we've established that there is no debt you know, that one race owes the other here. That's a horrible were, thought. It's a horrible thought, particularly, sorry to interrupt that, particularly when you divvy it up by time. You know, my ancestors, a lot of them were slaves. They were taken by the Muslims. They were indentured 
slaves slash servants uh, in, in the New World, a lot of the Irish people and so on, right? Collective guilt, particularly when sliced up by time, is just a bullshit shakedown by incompetent people. To say that I am somehow responsible for the slavery approved of by a government 400 years ago or 300 years ago is ridiculous. So a couple of percentage points of whites own slaves, a number of blacks own slaves, and no, not just because they wanted to free their friends. Blacks in Africa owned slaves. Muslims owned and killed tens of millions of blacks from Africa. There's no big navel-gazing guilt fest over in the Muslim world about any of that, right? And so the idea that we're somehow collectively responsible for the decisions made hundreds of years ago by people we have nothing to do with? I mean, if we're going to say that whites are responsible for 5% of whites owning slaves 200 years ago, then are we comfortable saying that we're going to judge all members of a race by 5% of their worst actors? Forget 150 years ago or 200 years ago. How about right now? A third of black men are going to get in trouble with the law. That's considerably higher than the number of whites who own slaves. So if we're going to judge all whites as bad for owning slaves 150 years ago, I'm telling you what's coming next is people are going to look and say, well, if we've got collective racial judgments for immorality going on, I'm going to say all blacks are hat because of the criminality of hat, right? That's wrong. We don't judge people collectively. We don't. Because there's free will, there's individual action. There's a conscience of one. I'm not run by my race. You're not run by your race. Blacks are not run by their race. We don't judge people collectively. We judge people according to individuals, according to individual choices and behavior. There's an old line from a, I guess at this point now, a pretty old Monty Python skit about some guy who gets arrested uh, and then he says, yeah, I, I, I accept my guilt, but society is also to blame. And the policeman says, right, agreed, we'll be charging them too. <laughs> You know, and it's, I remember thinking that as a kid, like, that's funny. And the reason I laughed was because I didn't realize it was going to be our entire doomed collectivist future, right? No, I would no more blame whites for slavery than I would blame blacks for criminality. You can't just take the actions of people within a group and extrapolate it to everyone within that group and say there's some form of collective guilt. I mean, you can, but it's really, really racist. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, it's really absolutely. saying whites are to blame for slavery from 150 or 200 or 300 years ago when only five or six percent of whites owned slaves. Whites hated slavery. Slavery was imposed on whites. Do you think the average poor white guy in the South in America was really happy that the labor he was competing with was, quote, free? Do you think he was really happy being dragged out of bed every time a slave escaped? So we go on slave patrols a couple of times a month throughout half the night. You know, like no pay for it. He didn't like any of that stuff. Didn't like it at all. It was imposed on people by the state, just like empire. No, the average British guy didn't want a damn empire. Why? Why would he want an empire? It raised his taxes. It had to be subject to endless, the endless draft. You'd be shipped out on, on some stupid ship where you'd die of scurvy because nobody'd figured out that you cure it with oranges and lemons. You know, more British sailors died from scurvy 
and died from war, died from actually being in naval battles. What the hell was the point of the empire for the average British person? The empire was a massive vanity, peeing on the map, so it turns your preferred color government program run by the elites at the expense of the masses. Like slavery, people did not want slavery, which is why it had to be imposed by government fiat and government force. So white people suffered under slavery, black people suffered more under slavery, white people ended slavery and 800,000 gave up their lives in the popular narrative of the Civil War in order to do so. England spent untold amounts of blood and treasure to rid the empire of slavery and eventually around the world. So I think that was great. The entire planet had had slavery for about a quarter well, 250,000 or 200,000 years or whatever it was. I mean, it's all in flux right now, 150,000 plus or whatever, right? Blacks sold, it was the blacks who caught the slaves, shipped them to the coast and sold the slaves to the whites. It would be impossible for there to be a North Atlantic slave trade without blacks because whites couldn't live inside of Africa because there's too many tsetse flies and malaria and sleeping sickness and diphtheria and dysentery and you name it, right? So it was this massive, horrible collective human endeavor where very few white people ended ended up buying slaves from a whole bunch of black people. And yeah, it was pretty tragic all around, and we know that because it's over. But the idea that we're going to somehow judge people collectively by the actions centuries ago of other people who may have looked a little bit like them, but who they have absolutely nothing to do with, is collectivist racism of the worst and most base order. And I will not, you know, people say, why do I talk about this stuff? Because it's not my fault that ethnic IQs differ around the world. It's not my daughter's fault. And I'll be damned if she grows up in a world where she's called racist for things that are absolutely beyond her control. Yeah. And and like what I'll say to my, my leftist friends as well, it's like, you know, you're, you're shit talking white people, but like, look, you know, if we want to solve problems, like if, dis, if, if disadvantages in certain communities, wouldn't you like to be white people to be part of the solution? like to help you, like rather than alienating them by like calling them racist. Right? So. Well, you know, I mean, we, we can keep, you know, I mean, your friends and, and other people, they can keep bagging on white people and they can keep making negative collective judgments about white people and somehow think that they're solving problems of racism rather than just adding to them. And part of me is like, yeah, just, you know, keep it coming and the blowback will happen. You know, uh, you know, you keep bagging on a, a bunch of people. Eventually, they're just going to get really pissed off. And it's pretty horrible. And I don't know why people are so keen on doing this. <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about you, Zed, of course, right? I mean, I'm glad that you're pushing back against this stuff. But I, I fundamentally don't get it. Like, I don't get why it's just such a popular pastime to race bait white people. Like, what is that? Does the world have nothing better to do? Did you all have any hobbies? Or, you know, like, I mean, especially when in white countries, the East Asians are vastly more wealthy than white people. Oh, those white people are so racist. So, you know, it's like, well, you're kind of doing better than the white people in a country that white people built. So not a very sustainable thesis, but I don't know. It's like, I, yeah. think, there's, I think there's a lot of anger towards white people because white people for a long time were just very, very successful. You know, we came up with a bunch of stuff that was pretty cool. And we, you know, you understand this is like ridiculous collectivism too. Let's just say white people sure, in the sure. past, you know, the real scientific method, real free markets, real medicine, real political freedom, freedom of speech, like there's some pretty cool stuff, some great works of art and so on. And I think it's 
I don't know if there's a frustration like how do you compete or I mean instead of just bagging on white people, just do better than us. You know, like it's great. I mean, if if East Asians come up with writing that's better than Shakespeare, fantastic. Translate it and I'll consume it with with great joy and pleasure. And if you know, if some East Asian economists come up with the greatest arguments for the free market that turns around the increasing collectivization and central planning of Western economies or economies around the world, fantastic. I'll kiss the hem of their garments. You know, instead of just, oh, the white people, they just, oh, this or so that, just do better, for God's sakes. Do, do better and, and inspire everyone, including white people, to the grandeur and heights of your achievements. I don't know, just this like insulting people and complaining about people and having negative judgments about people. It's like, why? <laughs> you know, like I can I, spend I th- my time pouring contempt on pop music. Oh, it's so shallow and it's so terrible. It's like, shut up and write some songs, you know, or just yeah. shut up. I, I think you've put your finger on it or very close to it, which is that, you know, if you're, and I, I'm mind reading, obviously, but like if things aren't going well in your own personal life, and there's this tendency to say like, well, you know, it's because of these you know, because of the the collective suffering that, say, East Asians suffered at the hands of European colonialism or something like that, right? And it's, um, no, nah, I mean, like, let's let's be honest about it. You know, the reason and I, I had to think about this. I was thinking about this recently, and um, you know, the yes, East Asians on average score a bit higher than white people on IQ tests, right? But Europeans, you know, came up with free market philosophy. Um, you know, freedom of speech, uh, you know, science. They invented these things, right? And well, it's because, in their modern because, phenomenon, right? I mean, I know right, that there's right. certainly in China there was amazing achievements five thousand oh, yeah, years yeah, yeah, ago. Yeah, basically, yeah, IQ sure. tests for bureaucratic positions. You had gunpowder. You had roads. You had uh, complex currency. You had lending for interest, like massively complex stuff. Well, literally, mm-hmm. Europeans were hanging around in cages, picking their asses with a stick, right? So. I get, I get all of that. And so I don't want to say it's, but in their modern incarnation that really yeah. took root and yeah. benefited the planet, uh, that's Europeans. Yeah. Thank, thank, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, if you go back further in history, you can see that you know, the different civilizations had their really fundamental contributions. I wouldn't have put my money point. on Europeans 3,000 years ago. I'll tell you that right now. Like, <laughs> okay, there's no money there. going you, on. Oh, yeah. These there. guys are going to do great. <laughs> as soon as they figure out how to make fire, they're going to be all over that civilization stuff. Well, but but I think it was that, you know, the capi- the capacity to be self-critical allows you to get closer to the truth, especially in things like science. Right. Right. You know, like, well, what my previous thinking was wrong. Maybe it's this thing. And that, and that, and that you've got to fight like hell for what you believe in. And I do think that some stereotypes exist for a reason. And some of the East Asian, and I'm sorry to lump, this is a big collectivist argument. So it's, you know, totally has understood. limited yeah. va- value. But I do think having worked with a bunch of East Asians and having them as friends, that there is a little bit of deference as the cliche goes to tradition, to authority, to the norms, mm-hmm. to, and mm-hmm. so on. And stepping mm-hmm. out of line is, is uh, not quite as encouraged, you know, the old saying that, that happens. I think it's Japanese, could be Chinese too, you know, like the it's the tall poppy that gets cut down. It's the hammer, that, it's the nail that sticks yeah. up that gets hammered down and so on. And if you want to progress your society, you have to be willing to just stand up and take 6,000 arrows to the throat while crying your barbaric truth above the rooftops of the world. That seems to be a smidge more European for whatever reason than East Asian. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I'd say... 
um, East Asians on a whole tend to be on the more agreeable side. Mm. And there's more there's more deference to authority. And also, I think just history kind of uh, made things play out this way as well. Like the civilizations of China, Japan and Korea, like they had strong central governments. If you were out of line, like you were you were jailed or executed. Oh, yeah. Right. And so that that'll call the it's a little yeah. called it, yeah like genetically that's going to call the population of disagreeable types um and you're going to be yeah, left yeah, i don't consider it a flaw agree. at all like i don't i don't consider it a flaw at all i consider it again as i talked about before it's it's specific adaptations to local pressures yes. the pressure in this case being yes. government and and so on i don't consider iq differences a flaw uh, i don't consider anyone superior or inferior i just want to repeat this because people get this wrong uh, about this perspective all the time. So when I say, well, whites are a little bit more like this, East Asians, it all makes perfect sense in the cultural and, and uh, political history of, of each particular region. There's no such thing as better or worse, but there are differences that I think are important to to understand. And to be, I mean, it's funny, you know, to, the, correct me where I'm going astray here, because this is kind of a funny sure. perspective. I was thinking the other day that about, okay, so I don't know, let's just say I'm Indian or whatever, right? So I'm looking at white civilization and white culture and the white lands and, and white technology and white political structures and freedom of speech and, and, and uh, all of the great gifts that, that uh, Western structures have given, given to the world. And, and don't get me wrong, there's been terrible stuff too. Uh, the government, uh, imperialism and, and the empire had some positive effects, but, you know, was not exactly uh, an avoidance of the initiation of the use of force. Yep. And it is a great challenge because you have to say, there's stuff I admire, really admire about black culture. There's stuff that I hugely admire about Chinese culture. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to spend quite some time there when I was younger. And there's stuff I hugely admire about Japanese culture. I mean, dude, I mean, when you lose at the World Cup and you tidy up massively and leave a thank you note in your locker rooms, like, you're not Aerosmith. Like, you're just, that's really like low crime. And, and it's like, there's really, really great stuff. I like the politeness. I like the deference. I like the hyper civility and so on. I think there's really great stuff uh, around it. So there's so much that I admire in so many different cultures. I like the easy socialization that happens among many black cultures. I also like the fact that uh, there is, you know, great, uh, a great sense of community and collect, uh, and, and, uh, um, a, a great passion for music and, and like wonderful things that, that can happen in, in a wide variety of cultures. But I got to think like if I was not white and I'm looking at the achievements of sort of Western European culture just over the past couple hundred years, ah, you know, that's a bit of a challenge. I, I wonder what it's like to look at your own, say, ethnicity, your own culture, your own history and say, okay, where are we in the giving of gifts to the world? Where is my culture, my ethnicity, my history, my country, my tradition in the giving of gifts to the world? Now, my particular thought about that is to say, okay, well, start giving great gifts to the world, right? And another way to do it, though, to sort of level up, you can either level up by doing better or you can level up by pulling the other person down. And I think that's the great challenge. I would love for another ethnicity to supersede the white Christians in particular. I mean, if you look at the the, the great Austrian economists, not Austrian the country, but Austrian the, the discipline, huge numbers of them are Jewish, right? Uh, huge formative influences in my thinking came from Jewish libertarians, Jewish 
uh, anarcho-capitalists, uh, uh, Jewish objectivists, um, talking about Murray Rothbard and, and von Mises and, and, and Ayn Rand and Hayek. I mean, and so when people say, oh, you know, the Jews, the Jews, it's like, hey, I'm sorry, man, the Jews educated me about economic and political freedom like just about nobody else. So I'm just not going to be able to give up that particular experience. I would love for people to do better, but it is very tempting to just sit there and growl at white racism than to say, wow, whites did some really cool stuff. That's very inspiring. Let's do better. Let's do more. I think that would be fantastic for people to get behind. But I understand that it's more of a challenge if you look at things collectively, but individually. You know, I'm frustrated at, at the state of philosophy. So I can just sit there and bitch about philosophy, or I could just try and create something great, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I think Candace Owens would refer to that as having the victor mentality as opposed to the victim mentality. Yeah, if you're frustrated by smallness and pettiness, be big and powerful. She's great, by the way. I just wanted to mention that. She's like, awesome. She, she is incredible. She is like – she is a force of nature, the likes of which we have not seen uh, in quite some time. She is – Your 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 interview with her was uh, one of my favorites, mm. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, she is uh, – she's going places. And oh, yeah. she has a huge amount of courage. And like her, um, her tweets are like haikus of compressed thought. Like it's – Genius. It's genius. And uh, I just, you know, I don't often do this, but I just wanted to mention she's like amazing. And I, I think I had the chance to, to meet her uh, and uh, just, just a great person all around and a lot of courage and is going to move political conversations in very, very productive ways. And uh, yeah, she's going to be president. Anyway, that's a topic for another time, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I would say that uh, no, you, you can't, you can't repay people by lowering standards for them. That's that's cursing them. That's making their lives worse. You know, you, you can't say, well, you guys had it tough, so we're going to make it crazy easy for you. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, why are Asian Americans doing so well? Because of Siberia, <laughs> right? Because of incredibly harsh winters, because it's plan or die, because of harshness. You know, one of the reasons why there was not quite as much progress in, say, Africa in terms of just like sheer intellectual general ability was because there isn't that kind of harshness in that kind of environment. And the further north you go, with the exception of like the very far north where there's no capacity to farm really, you know, the amount of suffering that it takes to produce high intelligence in a community is staggering. I mean, if you look at how much suffering the Jews had to do to move their IQ points up, uh, you know, a third of a point a generation or whatever, prodigious. If you look at the suffering that East Asians had to go through in order to end up with, like how many people with lower spatial reasoning just got wiped out by winter or a failure to plant or a failure to deal with the complexities of planting rice or who knows what, right? How many people who didn't have those remarkably high abilities just got wiped off the map by some unforeseen well i guess it would have to be somewhat foreseen otherwise it wouldn't select for intelligence but a high intelligence group is the result of tens of thousands of years of unbelievably immense suffering now i'm not saying we should make people suffer that's pretty bad too but the idea that somehow a community is going to get better if we lower our standards i just i don't get it 
I, I fundamentally don't get how, how that's going to work. I think it just produces shame and resentment and frustration, and it, it doesn't work. We've been yeah. trying that since the 60s when affirmative action first began to chug in. Like at some point, are we going to look at these numbers and say, is it working? Well, I mean, I, I remember seeing a, a New York Times article showing that even though affirmative action has been in effect for the past however many decades, the percentage of blacks admitted to college is still flatlined. Like it's been at that same level for a while. But of course, the, the answer to that from, from leftists is, well, let's do more of it. You know, we're not trying hard enough. We're not implementing these policies hard enough. And it's like, well, and then I then it gets the then it begs the question, like, well, is more college really the solution for for the black community? And I mean, I did a back of the envelope calculation, and, and I might be butchering this, but like, you know, the, you consider the amount of people that are admitted to college each year. And no, uh, and what if, as a form of reparations, we admitted all young black people to college? You know, enough to fill in all the admission spots to all the universities in the United States. Like that would that would you would have to deny admission to every other group for the next three to five years. Right. Well, and, you know, I may have to verify this math later, but like that's that's unrealistic. Like and, and well, college is so standards. You'd have to lower that, standards yeah. to the point where there would be no point going. I mean, that's I think that's already happening to a large degree. But and it's, you know, I mean. For any any community, you you accept every single East Asian, you have to lower standards. You accept any, every woman, you have to lower standards. Of course, right? Yeah. So all that you'd happen yeah. is you would destroy the value of a college education. People would end up in debt, and nobody would be able to tell who's talented and who's intelligent and hardworking and who's not. So it would be a complete disaster. And that's what happens when you try and jig the numbers rather than look at root causes. Yeah, and, and like and college is so it's 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 at the end of the pipeline as far as you know, how you, you raise a child into adulthood and, you know, trying to expect college to solve a community's problems. is like way too late. Well, they tried that though. They tried that with the program called Head Start where they dropped over a hundred billion dollars into trying to fix the, the educational achievement gap between blacks and whites. You just might as well have set fire to that money. I mean, it's no good whatsoever. The people say, well, let's try $200 billion. It's like, dudes, how about some diversity in your solutions <laughs> as opposed to more money, more money, more money, more control, more control, more control? No, it's, uh, it's, it's terrible. And that we're with the, we're at the tail end. Like people who are still talking about that stuff to me, they're just like flat earthers. You know, they're just like, that's so last century thinking, literally last century thinking. I mean, that's so 60, 70 yeah. years ago. And, uh, people are ready and ripe for new approaches and new solutions. And to me, people who like that's that's just very uncritical, uncreative, non-empirical thinking. And I that falls into the life's too short category for me in terms of those conversations. Like I I've just not it, it doesn't work. It's doing the opposite of working. Because right now the black family has been further decayed, undermined, and and virtually destroyed. And you have generations of people now who've been dependent on welfare, not just in the black community, in the poor community as a whole. And you have uh, massive amounts of general economic skills that have been lost along the way. You have the development of what's being called, you can check out the book by Perkins called 
the welfare trade, this employment resistant personality, you know, impulsive, aggressive, doesn't show up on time, uh, doesn't really figure out consequences very well, and, and wants the easy life of status and money without having to work for it and so on. Employment resistant personality. Well, personality is significantly genetic. So we have now really backed ourselves into a hell of a corner. And I still have great belief in the fertility and creativity of all humanity. But let's not pretend that the transition is going to be without challenges, because it ain't. Yeah, no, no I think, I think the, the point about finding new solutions is really important. And, and the thing is, don't give more. I, so, so when I presented that, uh, you know, like you have to deny admissions to so many people for this many years. So the person said, well, yeah, just go ahead and do it. Like, it's like, let's suffer, you know, like catastrophically for the next few years just to correct a perceived um, injustice. And would it's you just like, have to ask them, would you hire someone who came out of that kind of coerced educational environment? Mm -hmm. Just ask them. Right. Now, if they say, I absolutely would. Well, then say, then you don't need the environment. Just go hire them now and you'll be helping the black community, right? Just go hire talented blacks or whoever, right? But if yeah. they say, well, I wouldn't really be able to tell who was, who'd earned the degree and who was there just for fulfilling numbers, it's like, exactly. Exactly. So instead of just this wishful thinking, you know, we'll jig the numbers and everything will magically resolve, just say, okay, well, let's say that we completely exclude Asian Americans and fill all their slots of Asian Americans with, with blacks. Well, the blacks are going to go into debt, right? And you're either going to lower the standards, again, just because you're taking everyone rather than specifically just because they're blacks. But So you put blacks into the college. They're going to get into debt. They're either going to flunk out a lot or you're going to have to lower the standards. If they flunk out, it means that you've basically just burdened them with a whole bunch of failure and a whole bunch of debt and a whole bunch of frustration. That's really harmful for them. Or you've lowered the standards to the point where no one's confident to hire the people who come out of that institution because they don't know what the standards, what's happened to the standards. So what an incredibly destructive and horrible thing to do to the black community. And it's just that thinking, instead of thinking about some sort of push utopian scenario where the numbers match up, think about, would you hire someone who came out of an institution that took everyone and passed everyone and everyone graduated? Would you hire someone like that? And the answer is, well, of course not. It would be too dangerous. I mean, if you if you are an engineering company and you're going to hire a group from a university that has collapsed its standards and promoted and, well, you've got legal liability if stuff falls down, right? Like you, you've got compassion for people who might be driving across that bridge. You, you can't do it. Now, you get some black, Hispanic, I don't care, comes out of the same standards and does well, beautiful, fantastic, talented, brilliant, hire away, enjoy, promote, you know, like you're in good, safe hands. But when you start lowering standards for a group, oh, man, it's really brutal for that group. And I really dislike the people who don't have the basic empathy to, to understand that because it's really catastrophic. Well, it's, it's also a lack of experience on, on those people's ends as well, because they either haven't run their own business yeah. or they only come from you know, the world of, you know, highly educated people. Um, and they think, well, yeah, college, that's the answer to everything. So, oh, yeah, well, that's uh, and that's something that is um, lasting because college used to be a pretty good proxy for an IQ test. But 
really not so much. I mean, it used to be that that even finishing high school was a pretty good proxy for an intelligence test, but that's gone by the wayside, and soon, soon twill be college. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's and that's something that I've actually kind of. It's so this is the thing that kind of, um, uh, kind of changes the way that I've been raised or thinking about things because. You know, moving forward, if the standards of college keep lowering, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I, I would not permit my, you know, future children to attend college unless they had a really clear path to profitability yeah. at the end. You know, you want to be a petroleum this. engineer, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Right, right. Um, and then, you know, and by then, like, hopefully, you know, they're smart critical thinkers can resist some of the the Marxist indoctrination that's going on in college campuses. Um, you know, but it's like being very, very careful of just recommending that option in the first place. And that's, that's a hard suggestion to make among the East Asians as well, who are raised with, you know, education is really valuable. Like it's, you, you got, you know, you have to, you really need to achieve this, this in order to, to get to economic stability and to, I'm trying to get a career path that doesn't involve that. Well, the career path that's agent. very lucrative that doesn't involve that tends to be entrepreneurship. But because of the mild tendency, I think, that we talked about before around yeah. assertiveness and, and dominance and standing up against overwhelming opposition and, and so on, uh, there may be less option for that, in which case the traditional route for education seems to be uh, a pretty a pretty good uh, way to go. Yeah. So, um, in any case, I think that those are all the questions that I had for, for this evening. Uh, thanks for, um, you know, uh, taking the time for this. Oh, it's my pleasure. How, I mean, I know we, we danced, well, not danced around. We strode manfully into some pretty challenging topics. Uh, how was all that for you? Oh, it was great. It's great. I think you've given me uh, a lot of nice, uh, new talking points that I can, um, sort of, uh, incorporate. Yeah. And listen, I mean, White people, not racist. <laughs> you know, like it's so funny that the one group that is opening up their entire countries and cultures and taxpayers' wallets to every group in the known universe is the only group that's really called racist is like, I don't think that really works too, too well. And, um, you know, like you, you'll hear Western, Westerners called Islamophobic, although Muslim immigration into the West is massively high, but you'll never hear Saudi Arabia called Christianophobic because they don't allow Christians to immigrate in any permanent kind of way. So it is funny and, and kind of tragic that I think the least – or the, the group that is most self-conscious and, and really working to overcome any vestigial racism is the one that's called racist the most. And, of course, the big danger for that is some people still believe that, you know, there's this terrible Western racism and so on and, are, you know, conscientiously working as, as good – uh, people to 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 solve this problem and to overcome it and so on. But I think at some point, if, if people do come to the conclusion that they're just being verbally abused for the sake of getting resources, that people are just calling them racist because that way they'll feel guilty and hand over money, that it is a kind of tribal in-group shakedown of the out-group. Uh, I've seen anger in my life. I've known anger in my life. But I've never really seen the kind of anger the depth and power of the anger that arises when people realize that their good intentions are being shamelessly exploited. That is not a pretty place to be. 
And I really hope that people understand that. This isn't any kind of like dire warning or anything like that. I've just, you know, when I see people who try and do the right thing and try and do the right thing, and then they realize that they're just being exploited. Oof. You know, empathy goes from 100% to minus 100% literally overnight. It's a self-protective mechanism mm-hmm. for survival's sake. And that kind of turning point, we don't want to see. <laughs> so just recognize that when you keep calling people racist, you know, you're, you're, you're sowing a bit of a, a whirlwind there. And I hope that people will back off from it because, I mean, it's really not empirically the case. And it does seem to be sometimes just a profitable label to affix to people to, to get their stuff. And uh, that's not going to end well. That's not going to end well. And it's up to white people too. Like I take the Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson's words very seriously here. Like it's a matter of survival for all of us and white people as well. I, I love Jesse Lee Peterson's work, by the way. Oh, he's great. He's great. And uh, refreshing. And uh, very, very stimulating intellectually when it comes to things like forgiveness and his disbelief in, in racism as a whole and so on. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, he's well worth checking out. And uh, so I hope that helps. I really do appreciate the call, the conversation. Thanks, everyone, so much. Please don't forget to pick up your copy of the aptly named The Art of the Argument, which you can get at The Art of the Argument. .com. It's a great book. Working on a new one. It's just in its fifth draft at the moment. Whew, kind of drafty in here. Whew, that's a bad joke. Anyway, we'll leave it in. Uh, so please don't forget to donate, to support, to help out this most essential conversation in the world. Come on, you know that nobody else is doing this kind of conversation, this kind of work, even people who know better and you know who I'm talking to. So please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash Donate. Follow me on Twitter. It's Stefan Mullen. You've got some shopping to do. FDRURL.com forward slash Amazon. Don't forget, Australia, she be coming up relatively soon. It is just over a week until my first speech in the land. Well, so down under, it's upside down again. And uh, you can check that out at axiomatic.events. That's axiomatic.events. And thank you again, as always, for a wonderful conversation. Have a great, great day. We'll talk to you soon.